Oh, I've got a wee park and a wee dinosaur. Hello, everybody. It's another. <laughs> I can never remember Attenborough's lines from Jurassic Park. All I can remember, all I, all I, I basically have distilled them down to this wee Scottish man going, "Oh, I've got a wee park with a wee dinosaur." The only actual I line. You were going for the wife from So I Married an Axe Murderer. <laughs> I've got a juice dinosaur. <laughs> a juice dinosaur. I was going to say, Scott, I think you mean a juice tiger. <laughs> um, the only actually genuine line of his I remember is, You're the most beautiful dinosaur in the whole park. Yes, you are. <laughs> oh, I've got a wee park. I've got a park and a wee dinosaur. <laughs> Hello everybody, it is the Fuds on Film year-end review where we pick our favourite films of 2017 and also just throw in for shiz and giggles uh, some of the films we've watched in December. I am your returning champion, Craig Eastman, and (laughs) with me tonight on this most glorious of nights, Scott Morris. Delighted to meet you. And Drew, normal name Tavendale. Are you happy now? <laughs> no, now I'm crushed by disappointment. <laughs> okay, and in the yellow corner, <laughs> Herbert J. McFlooster Jr. Say hi, Drew. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh dear, yes. Um, it probably behooves us to move on as quickly as possible, so without further ado, uh, what's the running order for this again? <laughs> Well, first we'll talk about a few films. What we done saw in December, and then we'll go on to see what the what the crack is with the whole year as a whole. But I guess first off, we'll talk about Murder on the Orient Express. Ooh. Agatha Christie's Belgian detective Hercule Poirot has seen numerous adaptations on screen, large and small, and stage, and with many different and often distinguished actors playing a role, from the great Peter Ustinov to Albert Finney, Alfred Molina, Jose Ferrer, and Ian Holm. Though I think it's safe to say that, for most UK audiences at least, the archetypal Poirot is David Suchet. Of his tales, no doubt the best known is Murder on the Orange Express, which has itself seen numerous adaptations. And if I had a point, I've now lost it entirely and ironically would appreciate the help of the great detective himself to find it. (laughs) It was probably something along the lines of not needing another adaptation of the story as there have already been plenty, but as there have been so many, then another was unlikely to cause problems. (laughs) Something like that anyway. That seems reasonable. (laughs) To wit, there has been another adaptation of Murder on the Orient Express, this time directed by and starring Kenneth Branagh. Though, to be honest, the real star is his truly magnificent triple-layered (laughs) moustache. Some of the finest facial hair ever seen on screen. After an opening in Jerusalem, which serves successfully and humorously so to set up both the fastidiousness of the character and his sleuthing abilities, events conspire to see Poirot's holiday plans scuppered and for him to be aboard the Orient Express from Istanbul to Paris. After getting to know each of the characters a little, Poirot awakes one night to find out that somebody's done a murder, (laughs) and it's up to him to find out who amongst the passengers is responsible. I will say absolutely nothing further about the plot because if, like me, you've somehow managed to get this far in life and know absolutely nothing about the story and the identity Uh of the murderer, then you're clearly going to get the most enjoyment from this with that continuing to be the case. I can talk about another couple of things though, and I'll begin with the cast, which is quite impressive. 
from the superb Judy Dench and Olivia Coleman to Johnny Depp, Derek Jacobi, Michelle Pfeiffer, Daisy Ridley, who I spent the entire film thinking was Kira Knightley because apparently my brain <laughs> had decided to take that evening off. Oh, cool. <laughs> no, genuinely, I was like, I was looking at the cast list for this early and I was like, Daisy Ridley? Who the hell was Daisy Ridley in it? Oh, <laughs> that, that wasn't Kira Knightley. Okay. Uh, th- these people are largely interchangeable, it seems. Um, uh, Willem Dafoe, Josh Gad, and Penelope Cruz. So no big names then? <laughs> none, none at all. Um, all of them do a pretty solid job, but it's fair to say that this is the Kenneth Branagh show. Uh, indeed, he has been criticised for hogging the limelight in this adaptation and relegating his star-studded cast to the background. But frankly, I care not a jot, for he is wonderful. Yeah. As this is Tash, and I was thoroughly entertained by it. <laughs> him. I mean him. <laughs> Pretty much everyone else is engaging and entertaining when given their opportunity, so it's all good, really. The staging isn't necessarily constrained by the action being largely confined within the few carriages of a steam train, and I'd like to have seen more of the shots where Branagh tried to do something a bit more inventive with the camera, like the top-down view of the cabins when the murder is discovered. Jerusalem aside, most of the action takes place on the train, but it does look nice, with the splendour and luxury of the train coming across well. And we do get the occasional exterior shot of the train passing through mountains, etc. to break things up. But visually, it's unspectacular. Which is why the next thing seems particularly odd. This film is one of only a handful shot on 65mm film since the mid-90s. One of which was, in fact, Branagh's own adaptation of Hamlet. But unlike this year's other 65mm film, Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk, the large format lends little distinctiveness to the finished product. Which leaves me wondering... Why bother? It's not the perfect film, but I was hooked by the mystery and Poirot's investigation of same, and found it thoroughly entertaining throughout. It's great Sunday afternoon fare, and I very much recommend it, especially if, like me, you're unfamiliar with the details of the plot. Yeah, I I did not know about that 65mm thing, and I would not have clocked it as such. I I thought it looked quite nice for the most part. Um, It doesn't look like 65mm. In terms of production design, but I don't see why you would need to either go to the bother of that or Mm. for it. You know, it seems a bit of a extravagance. I guess that's maybe one of our kind of brand's bucket list items. I was going to say, I'm more intrigued now because, yeah, from what I understand, I'm like, why would you choose to do that? But Yeah, Mm. I think it's it's not even a bucket list thing, because as I mentioned, he used himself on Hamlet. He's done it. And it's not like, because one of the other few films that's done in recent years has been The Hateful Eight, which which had a very distinctive look, that combined with the very wide-angle lenses that Tarantino used. So there was a point there, there was a distinctive, a visual distinctiveness Murder on Express? No. It could have been shot on digital quite easily. doesn't seem like it would be worth it for the, what, three or so, like, sort of panning outdoor shots that, that it yeah. kind of might have given a benefit for. No, that's a, that, was a, that was a strange one, actually. Um, but for the film itself, I, I enjoyed it quite a lot. I, I'm pretty sure I'd seen one Murder of the Order Express version a while back, but I couldn't remember any of it, so it was uh, coming to it essentially fresh. And uh, I like the way it tied up without giving too much away. There's parts of it where you start thinking, this is getting incredibly contrived, but it does manage to sort of square that circle quite well at the end, I think. And uh, um, I was fully on board with it. I was engaged with the story, and I liked all the actors in it. And it's a good cast. I don't think any of them are particularly stretching themselves, but they're all just giving a a fun performance, and it's uh, a lot of fun to watch, and I enjoyed quite a lot. Yeah, not a spectacular film, but a solidly enjoyable one and uh, easy to recommend to pretty much anyone, regardless of your tastes. Honestly, I th- similarly, Scott, I have convinced myself that I'm, I must have seen Orient Express at some point because I'm not sure how you 
Um, <laughs> yeah, I yeah. would have thought Craig that I would have at least seen the Peter Ustinov one. Totally. On TV a hundred times during our lifetimes. After and, yeah, after no, you guys mentioned going to see this, I had a look back. I'm, I'm like, of course, I'm familiar with Murders on the Orient Express. Can't remember a single detail of it, but I'm sure if I go to IMDb <laughs> and go through a list of all the adaptations, I'll be able to pick one out and say, yes, that's the one I've seen. Nope. Can't do it, and I'm I'm resolutely Peter, positive. He in Murder, sorry, Albert Finney, sorry, Murder. Albert Finney. Yeah, yeah. Eustace was on Death on the Nile or something else. That's the one. Yeah, now Death on the Nile, I have seen. That's why when you said Peter Ustinov, I went what? Um, because I've 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 seen that Death on the Nile, but actually I've gone back and I am a hundred percent certain I have managed to spend my entire life without having actually ever come across a single. Have, have, sorry, having ever crossed paths uh, crossed paths with Murder on the Orient Express, which is quite an achievement because it's meat and potato stuff. But if anything, that's more than anything, it's convinced me to actually want to go and see it. So don't expect me to have any input on this, listeners. Um, <laughs> yeah. But in the same way, I want to say that I've actually, I've, I feel like I've got a lot of time for Kenneth Branagh recently. But in the same way, when I look back at the work Kenneth Branagh's done, I've not really seen a lot of it. So I'm not sure why that <laughs> yeah. is. I don't, but, I, I don't think I've ever had any particular strong feeling one way or the other about Kenneth Branagh in the past. I, I suspect the earliest I can remember him is being vaguely where he was, I think, married to Emma Thompson. That's right, and when he did and Frankenstein. I remember, even before that, I think, when we were doing English at high school, we mm-hmm. did Much Do About Much Nothing. Do and that's yeah. probably my earliest memory of Kenneth Branagh. Uh-huh. And popped up every now and then. I was um, always aware then, of him at that age as being like a theatre lovey. He yeah, was, a, he yeah, was one of the lovies and stuff like that. Yeah, that. yeah, exactly. But I wasn't really familiar with his work till Much Do About Nothing. But And then, very strange things, I always thought he was a very odd choice for Thor. But Marvel have done some kind of left field choices in their yeah. um, directors' times. He directed the first Thor film, and the problems they have with Thor were very much in the script, not the direction. Mm. Even if he does completely misuse Dutch angles in it, for which people want to be, you know, murdered, but uh, <laughs> or preferably on uh, a train of the description. <laughs> but then things like when we we talked about it on a, an episode, Craig, the um, Jack Ryan Shadow Recruit. Yeah, yeah. That he's in. Did he direct that? I want to say he directed yes, it, but he's also he in it, that. didn't he? he did. yeah. um, I've yeah, not seen that one. Terrible, but... terrible accent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that's a, it's an entertaining film. So yeah, I find I have a lot of time for Kenneth Branagh, and in this, he's great, and his moustache is awesome. I think what I appreciate about Kenneth Branagh is now, especially the older I get, is that he strikes me as genuinely, A, an affable chap, but also he's very much one of that group of 80s, 90s British theatre lovies who made their way into sort of mainstream cinema, along with Emma Thompson, and uh, who he used to be married to and whatnot. But he seems to have a real genuine interest, despite his sort of background and whatnot, and sort of because th- does he, he does he come from quite a privileged background, Kenneth Branagh? I certainly I, have that perception of him. But even as I, I say I that, I realise it feels I'm, like that's right. But that's just maybe an assumption. Of I was going to say, I feel like actually that's an actor, absolute but. assumption on my part. But regardless, regardless of whatever, he really does genuinely seem to have a want to bring that material to a mainstream audience. And you can absolutely see that in his choice of movies, and especially the films he's directed, even more so than the films he's starred in. He seems to really have this passion about making material that is seen as being, I suppose, for argument's sake, to a working-class audience, being seen as somewhat aloof or being somewhat the reserve of upper upper classes and upper-class learning. He seems to have a real desire to want to make that accessible to as many people as possible and more and more I really appreciate that about him and he's sustained that over a long enough period now that I appreciate and I I believe that it's not just a fad thing for him he seems to be genuinely passionate Mm -hmm. about it and I I, the older I get the more I I 
actually appreciate Kenneth Branagh. Yeah, because <laughs> I'd like to have a pint with Kenneth. Shakespeare was a, maybe not working working class thing, but at yeah. the time it was a sort of mass market thing, which mm-hmm. sort of drifted away from in absolutely. But yeah, just the guy, he does seem very personable, and like he pops up. Uh, Scott and I talked about it in a podcast just a couple of months ago, Mindhorn. Yeah, um, yeah. Where he's playing himself and sort of like he's desperate for publicity, so he can he can poke a wee bit of fun of himself. And then mm-hmm. actually, just thinking about, it, he is in Dunkirk. Yeah, that's right. And he's there's a kind of a warmth and sympathy to his character mm-hmm. in Dunkirk, even though it's relatively small, because you know nobody gets a great deal of characterization in that film. Uh, no, and yeah. even in a small role, he manages to make that. It's a fairly quite small role, and one that would have been quite easy to just have been the sort of the stereotypical sort of it's stiff upper I'm, lip, exactly stoi- man, yeah, that whole yeah. stoicism thing. Exactly, it would be easy enough just to be. I'm going to stand here and straighten my collar as I wait to get machine gunned by this uh, by this enemy plane. But Absolutely. yeah, he, he did bring he brings a real affable access quality to pretty much anything that he's in that I've, I've really started to appreciate recently and I think the first I be- started to become aware of that was his role in Valkyrie I think I, when, can't rem- I can barely when, remember when Valkyrie. Brian Singer did when when he did Valkyrie and the role That's he played Brian in Singer, that was, I definitely don't remember yeah. being Brian Singer I remember the, I remember the large events and Tom Cruise being the the guy who was trying to kill Hitler but I don't yeah. remember there was a real sympathy in that and something just about in his final scene in that where he committed well you don't see it on camera but where he goes to commit suicide and he holds he, he takes the fuse out of the grenade and holds it under his chin there was something about the expression on his face in particular in that scene where I was like man I like Kenneth Branagh <laughs> and I'm like I was the, the material that he chooses to be in I feel like he's all about accessibility and I really started to appreciate that about him but I say that having actually seen very little of his recent <laughs> output so Take take it with a pinch of salt, but um, I really do want to see uh, Orient Express for that reason. And for what it's worth, uh, working class background from Belfast. So I guess oh, that's, cool. just, that's just the rather Belfast, sheen that it gives really you. Yeah. Sugar, that goes to show you. Yeah. yeah, there you go. But I concur, you should definitely try and give a, a watch to Murder on the Orient Express. Cool, sweet. Moving swiftly on to yes, something. that brings us that brings us to Justice League. Um, <laughs> This 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 PS two era villain, yeah, the, the, and it's PS two, it's PS two era CG of mustaches. Oh yeah, it's both in writing and in looks that the villain looks like it's from a PlayStation two video game. Craig, <laughs> again, a film I've not seen, but with which I feel I'm intimately familiar. Justice League, of course, is the film that uh, the DC film universe has been racing towards since Man of Steel, and having got there. There's not all that much there, there, but that's rather getting ahead of myself. Having having got there, they found it was past closing time. <laughs> uh, with Henry Cavill's Superman still dead, crime seems to be on the uptick, and still Ben Affleck's Batman and Gal Gadot's Wonder Woman start knocking heads together and approach the other previously identified metahumans to join together, just in case some alien arsehole appears and tries to conquer Earth. One of those metahumans, Barry Allen's speedster The Flash, played by Arthur <laughs> Miller. Barry Allen! Uh, he's eager to join up and help like a cute little over eager puppy dog less enamoured of the teamwork deal is Jason Momoa's Arthur Aquaman Curry, Lord of the Fish or something and Ray Fisher's Victor Cyborg Stone who is a cyborg with robot arms and that uh, more or less accidentally created by his father in a lab from weird unknown alien technology that I hope no alien arsehole tries to use to take over the world (laughs) 
Oh no, some alien arsehole is trying to take over the world. Steppenwolf, named after the Born to be Wild crooners, is a daft-looking CG monstrosity who tried this kind of stunt before, only to have his digibutt kicked by the combined forces of humans, Amazonians, and Aquafarians, or whatever they're called. Scott, wait, 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 wait. back up, back up, back up. Steppenwolf. Steppenwolf. That's the man. Briefly explain to me Steppenwolf, because you have thrown me a goddamn curveball there. What? He's, um... He, he works with his um, son in a rag and bone business. But who is he? What does he do? <laughs> he is an alien, and his motivation is he likes to conquer worlds, and that is the only motivation hint you get. And he's a rag and this bone is, man. This is, <laughs> and he's called Steppenwolf. That was yes. a step tone son. And what? He, oh, right, okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, sorry, that wasn't obvious to me. <laughs> the the plot of Justice League, you know, where a powerful being from another world comes to Earth to yes. use a device to convert the Earth into a facsimile of his own planet, which is entirely distinguishable from the plot of Man of Steel, in which a powerful <laughs> being from another world comes <laughs> to Earth to use a device to convert the Earth into a facsimile of his own planet. Entirely can, distinguishable, do you hear? Can we just back up to the place where he's called Steppenwolf, though? Because that's the bit that threw me, not the Steptones on reference. It's not yes. the 1970s rock band. But why is he called Steppenwolf? I know. Who knows? It's possibly it, it's possibly named after the Henrik S. Uh, book, but having read the synopsis of the book, it doesn't seem like it bears any relevance to that either, so it's just a name. Can we call him Jazz Phantom Pants from now on? I think we should. Cool. <laughs> that, that's a cooler name than the character deserves, Craig. Well, it makes more sense to me than Steppenwolf. Can we, can we just call him um, NPC4? No. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> I still prefer Jazz Phantom Pants. I've just blown my own horn there. <laughs> I'm totally calling my son Jazz Phantom Pants from now on. He lost his three cubes of alien technology that it was using to devastate planets, which no. I presume were given a name at some point, but I neither remember nor care enough to look up. Oh, Jazz! One of these MacGuffins gave Cyborg his not fully understood powers. Jazz Phantom Pants seeks to reclaim these cubes from their guardians, the Amazonians, the Aquapeeps, and Victor's Pa, uh, with his <laughs> army of flying, undead, insectoid, whatever the f***s, across a number of CG set pieces, with her heroes trying to stop him, realising they're not quite up to the task, and necromancering Superman to help them. Now, there's... A wait, wait, of... wait, 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 wait. Is this film overwritten? Just a wee bit. <laughs> okay, that's yeah, Also, at the same time, okay. underwritten. I, I know this film. I know right. this. I've not seen it, but I know this film. There's a lot of things I'd want to rant about in this film, but we have a stuffed docket to get through today, so uh, we'll perhaps revisit this down the line, because there's a lot of oddness in this film coming from the tonal shifts between this and Batman versus Superman, but here's some bullet points. Right, both of which I, I, want, I want to see this, and I want to see Batman versus Superman. I haven't had a yeah. chance, so can we do that? I think we should. Let's schedule cool. it. Right. Joss Whedon, lighter touch. Clearly he was told to Avengerize this film when he was when he replaced Zack Snyder after his unfortunate family tragedy. Would not be unwelcome were it consistent throughout the entire film, but this cut and shut is showing its welding somewhat. There is no point killing off any character if they're only staying dead for, what, an hour and a half of running time? Once Superman recovers his old self, all tension just immediately drains from the film because he's close enough to unbeatable there was never any doubt that uh, Jazz Phantom Pants was going to be curb-stomped. Now, it's admittedly unlikely, but there was at least a chance of some of the lesser heroes could have been killed, but apparently that's not much of a barrier anymore anyway, so who cares? And while far from perfect, Batman vs Superman at least thought to ask what happens when, essentially, God shows up. This might have been parlayed here into asking what happens when God dies, 
but instead it's just another CG light show. Steppenwolf is terrible. Poor Karen Hines. Some motivation would be nice other than I like ruining planets. Also, he looks silly. There's the odd character moment in this film that I liked, but nowhere near enough of them. I'm entirely on board, however, with the kind of minimal origin story approach given for Flash and Cyborg and Aquaman. I think that worked fine. The action is fine, but overall not that remarkable in the slightest, which, given the production cost of this film, is almost morally indefensible. Yes, but given uh-huh. I, several tens of millions of dollars was was removing a moustache badly. <sighs> I don't even want to go there. Who wrote this film? Everyone wrote this film, <laughs> and it shows. And no one. Yeah. Um, now, as again, back to Whedon thing, the quips and such are fine by themselves, but seem to come from an entirely different film, mm. like perhaps the Avengers, you know, and and so on and so forth. I mean, I, I should add that coming out of this film, I thought it to be an entertaining enough film, and I was fine with it, and even if it ranked like at the bottom of this year's comic book crop, but it's a film that the more you think about it, the more it falls apart. Now, the solution for me, of course, is to stop thinking about it. Now, <laughs> this will be very easily achieved, as I've already forgotten most of what happened in it. Uh, and it was only a couple of weeks back. Now, I, I sound a lot more negative now than I'd anticipated being when I left the screening. And I'm not going to—I'm still not going to say that it's an outright bad film. It's just one that's really haphazard. And that's pretty much the capsule summation of the DCU films at the moment. Overall, meh. Definitely can't recommend it. I see Logan's out in DVD right now. Just saying, yeah. <laughs> Is it? Uh, yes. Can can I just say uh, uh, at this point because I I know I think the three of us and I know certainly I have been very dismissive of Zack Snyder in the past. But when you mentioned their Scottish, tra- I was aware of the fact that vaguely aware out of the loop as I have been that Joss Whedon has stepped in. I wasn't sure to what degree or at what point in filming etc. And the rest of it. But when you mentioned his personal tragedy, I wasn't quite a- I wasn't aware of that as being mm. the reason. And I, while you've been talking, I've just been reading, and actually, mm-hmm. I almost feel like a bit of a <laughs> for being <laughs> so so dismissive of Zack Snyder because I know a lot. I know he's perceived as being a bit of a hack, and I have criticised him as such in the past. Although I did quite enjoy Man of Steel, not so much most of the other stuff he's done. But then, having just read what happened and his reasons why, um, I have all the sympathy in the world for the man, and I think he made the right decision. Um, what did happen? I'm his, uh, aware of this. His, daughter back in, his daughter committed, his 20-year-old daughter committed suicide back Ooh. in March and he'd carried on with the film saying that he thought it was burying himself. Going, it would be a cathartic thing to go back to work and bury myself and see if that was the way through it. The I can understand the, that motivation, certainly. You absolutely. Not think about anything but else, then really. when it became clear they were going to have to do reshoots and that he would have had time to take, he would have had to have taken time out from his family and go to the UK to do reshoots, he decided that actually his family needed him more. And reading that now, I understand that, I know we dismiss Zack Snyder as a filmmaker sometimes, as a populist filmmaker, it's easy to do because no one's ever going to trust us with $700 trillion to make a film. <laughs> Whether or not you, or to what degree you argue there is artistry in the man's work, as a human being still, he has been faced with a horrible situation there. And okay, so. I think he has, I th- personally think he made the right call there. And if not a great fan of his films, I have a newfound respect in the last two minutes for Zack Snyder. <laughs> so I... Th- figure that's worth pointing out at this point yeah in terms of Zack Snyder's work before I mentioned what I think mm. about Justice League um I actually I 
love Watchmen. I loved it from the moment I saw it in the cinema. Uh, people are really down it. I, I'm very mm-hmm. fond of that film. Like, I actually, th- I'm, I'm neither here nor there on it, but I actually like his Dawn of the Dead remake. Um, oh, I think that's a pretty decent film, actually. Actually, yes, I think that was the first work of his that I actually saw in the cinema. And that good call. That actually, especially for a remake, as tired as we are of remakes, even at that point, was I think there's value in that. The problem I have more with Zack Snyder is from the point of 300 onwards, I just don't like his style for the most part. I don't like that very CGI heavy, very green screen heavy, super saturated, or or something very dark. Um, Visuals at the expense of all else. Yeah, very style over substance sort of look. Mm -hmm. Justice League suffers to a degree from feeling like two different films jammed together badly. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, But I'm not sure any of that would help. I, I found Justice League okay. Um, I don't quite have the same issue as Scott in that if you think about it, it falls apart because I just haven't thought about it since. Uh, <laughs> yeah, which which is really the, the adequate response to this film. Is to, <laughs> which is why it's like, it, there's nothing in here that deserves to be thought about. <laughs> came quite a surprise to me to find out I, I actually wrote substantial notes after I came out of the cinema. <laughs> I've only just found them just now, but I, because Scott has talked a lot, I'll, I'm going to chop what I've written in half, but there's a couple of things I wanted to mention. I mean, cause my, my, my big issue, apart from the terrible, terrible villain, with just like as a plot because as scott's saying you know when when you bring superman back into it, he's a god he's never going to get beaten how would you do that so as i was watching it i was rewriting the script in my head and i came up with a much better one without much effort to be honest <laughs> um so like the idea um it's like that superman gets resurrected okay doesn't know who or what he is he's dangerous Possibly he becomes evil, and not in a Superman 4 sort of way. Possibly becomes evil because he has power and anger rage, but no personality in history, or you know, or perhaps at least the process robs him of empathy, sympathy, etc. And he's angry, angry at dying. Perhaps angry because the world doesn't truly appreciate him, or humans don't deserve help, or because his dad died. Any of those are potentially interesting. So you make that the main storyline, trying to fight and restore Kal-El and... Wolf simply serves serves as the reason Superman needs to be resurrected in the first place. Then is quickly dealt with and he gets banished back to World of Warcraft or wherever the hell he came from. <laughs> Instantly, that's eleven times more interesting and compelling. Instead, Superman's a bit miffed for a few minutes, then he goes away with Lois and everything's fine by morning. Well, that's convenient. It's, yeah, there are so many bad things about this film. First of all, um, I resent the fact that Billy Crudup's in it because his existence reminds me of Alien Covenant, which I do not welcome. Crudup must be banished. <laughs> the most generic villain, literally the most generic villain with the most generic plan, um, invented in, as we mentioned, a truly atrocious CGI. There's the fact that Ben Affleck is Batman, it's neither good nor bad as Batman or Bruce Wayne because he doesn't really get a chance to be Bruce Wayne or Batman. Yeah, I would, I would one... love to see them go and just do individual films with these people and stop the yeah. whole rush to have some sort of team up because I think Batman, uh, ba- but Scott, Batman that's could what be the brilliant, Avengers but... are doing no but Craig the thing is Scott, right, Scott uses the word rush and that's exactly it it is Marvel, I know it is I'm Marvel, being facetious yeah. yeah Marvel took the time and whether you like the films or I think there's too many or whatever Marvel took the time to give each character their own film or possibly a couple films before they even got it together yeah it took the time to build the world Warner Brothers clearly looked at everything and went, we want that, we want it now. Exactly. Because Warner Brothers have no idea what they're doing. No, as, and no, absolutely 100%. And as dismissive as I am from a personal standpoint, just out of preference for material as I am of what Marvel are doing in Marvel's release, release schedule, um, I would still acknowledge that the majority of Marvel's output have been decent movies. And I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't sit here and judge anyone for being a fan of Marvel's movies because I think they're doing... 
If you look at if you look at if you look at previous franchises that operate on that level, you've got very you've got very few options to look at. Compare it to something like Harry Potter films, for example. Mm-hmm. Someone told me they're a massive fan of Harry uh, Harry Potter films, and then another person told me they were a massive fan of Marvel films. I will. I would rather spend time with the person who likes Marvel films than who's a fan of Harry Potter films. Marvel are doing certain things very right, and there's nothing wrong with appealing to a mass market the way they are because they are clearly invested in delivering some level of quality. And there is clearly something going on at a vetting level, mm-hmm. at a quality control level, that That's Marvel it. are getting right that DC have no idea what they're doing. Since Christopher Nolan stepped away... Yeah. DC, to my mind, with the exception of Man of Steel, which I liked in spite of itself, I'm not going to make an argument for it being a great film. I quite enjoyed it. I went in with low expectations, and I think I came out feeling rewarded because of that. But I'm, I don't own it. I didn't go out and buy it on Blu-ray or anything afterwards. I felt no compul- you know, compulsion to watch it again. But there is something fundamental that clearly DC are not doing. And you're right. I just feel like it's a rush for. But yeah. they, but they've got it. It's like they're oh, the younger, exactly. they're they the no younger patience. sibling who just wants the same thing as their bigger brother, and they've got yeah. no patience. They've got no desire to build something from the ground up. They haven't even got the, they haven't even got the compulsion to sit back and. It's to me, it's fairly obvious what they're doing. Marvel seem to be hiring people who have a basic understanding of what constitutes a good script and how to adapt something from a source material to a different medium. They also have an appreciation of people who and sometimes have thought and sometimes have chosen people from out of the box, like Kenneth Branagh, but they've looked for who's a good director? Not necessarily not necessarily someone who is comfortable handling a two hundred million, three hundred million dollar budget. Who's actually just a good director? Because yeah. when you look at James Gunn really or whatever do, yeah. Taika Waititi. You would never have guessed. Totally. Who the hell is gonna hand Taika Waititi like hundred and fifty million dollars to make a Thor film? And the answer to that question would be fairly obviously anyone who's got any common sense because a good director is a good director because Mm. they understand the fundamentals of filmmaking regardless of the budget they're being handed and if you have ostensibly an idea for a film which is a superhero movie but you want it to be ostensibly a comedy I wonder Mm. if we go to Zack Snyder or I wonder if we go to someone who is proven to be a director of great comedy movies I wonder who I'm going to give that money to and it seems obvious to me that Marvel are making one choice and DC are making the other and it's it's easy for us to sit here and judge but at some point as a yeah. studio throwing 300 what is it 300 million dollars or something yeah, at Justice League yeah. throwing that at a movie and coming away with a bad CG moustache removal what the hell are you doing man I think that's been their big misstep is that they've given Zack Snyder quite a lot of control over everything that's happening in this universe for want of a better term and I think this might be one case where it would have been better to give it to a suit mm-hmm. because for for better or worse, what uh, Kevin Feige's done is he's he's picked a number of different people through a number of different yep. styles and you a number of different films. They're all they're all clearly Marvel films, yeah. but they have their own little twist. Whereas yeah. all the DC universe stuff that's since Zack Snyder comes in has come across as either Zack Snyder doing what he does, or Zack Snyder doing what he does and trying to twist it into something else, mm-hmm. or someone else trying to imitate Zack Snyder, mm-hmm. and none of that's really worked very well. Yeah. Zack Snyder, I really like Watchmen, but he's tried yeah. to make Watchmen with every film that he's made since <laughs> yeah. then. Um, Marvel, Marvel are saying... fine for Watchmen, but I need something different now. You know? Yeah, Marvel, Marvel are saying, I want to make a fantasy, a dark fantasy comedy film, so I'm going to hire James Gunn. DC are saying, 
I want to make a Zack Snyder film. <laughs> so I'm going to hire Zack Snyder or someone who's trying. And again, I I feel like Zack Snyder, like you say, there's enough evidence there that Zack Snyder. It's not that he's an, it's not that he's a he's not UV, he's not UV ball, <laughs> right? Zack Snyder has made good films. Uh, we'll talk about Blade Runner 2049 in a minute. There's a part of me that wo- if I was given the chance to visit an alternate universe, I would choose the one where Zack Snyder got to make Blade Runner 2049 because I honestly I honestly believe that Zack Snyder, from a visual standpoint, is almost an Im- impeccable filmmaker, but he's operating at a level where he only gets offered <laughs> mass market scripts. <laughs> and I really want to see Zack Snyder being hired by a studio to make a $10 million movie with a f***ing awesome script, but nothing else. Okay. Yeah. I suppose Dawn of the Dead is closer to that, where um, yeah, exactly. slightly more original stuff. Turns out to be Sucker Punch, and that's not a good film, so I'm not sure it, no, I, exactly. I really follow through that. <laughs> but, exactly. Sucker, uh, Punch, which, Sucker Punch, which was basically a poster child for, okay, here's what we can do with CG camera work now. Yeah, an objectifying woman. Exactly. Used it for. Yeah, exactly. I'm gonna I'm gonna fire a virtual camera slowly, like up the blade of a sword, and then down the leg of a woman wearing stockings for wearing holdups for a 17 year old girl yeah. wearing holdups for no appreciably good reason other than <laughs> that looks badass yeah. and having that horribly oppressive green screen heavy look to it. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It's like. We will obviously when we're going to talk about films of the year. This is possibly the best overall year for comic book films ever because mm-hmm. yeah. certainly from the way Scott and I have discussed it, there have been at least three successive comic book films that have been potential candidates for best film of the year, let alone the best comic book film of the year. Mm-hmm. And Marvel, not all of their films are successful and probably the only exception being Civil War. They're all at least mildly entertaining at the mm-hmm. very worst. Mm-hmm. And yes, they are. They're focus grouped to, to within an inch of their life, and so they tend to follow this very like down the middle of the road line. Uh-huh. But they tend to be at least competent, and they're often yeah. very, very funny. Or and they could, when you get something in a Thor Ragnarok or an Ant Man, mm-hmm. um, they're trying something a bit different. Yeah, and Warner Brothers have no idea what they're doing. They just went, oh, we want all of that, we want it now, and then you end up with this, which is just, mm-hmm. it's just a mess. And then. And then they also they seem to understand what they're doing with their characters too, because because Superman, right? Superman is for some reason in this film as he was in Man of Steel and Batman versus Superman a dick, and I have no <laughs> idea why. I mean, do you remember just how damn good Christopher Reeve was? Yeah, Christopher Reeve no. was was just <laughs> likable and really engaging and just this great guy and he was a great um clark kent and a great superman yeah and, well basically what i'm saying is i miss christopher reeve <laughs> um and then you also i know this is probably ridiculously geeky thing to say but the idea that henry henry cavill's physique even manages to bother me in this film <laughs> because he's this huge buff guy with ridiculously massive pectoral muscles and i'm thinking yeah but superman's doesn't need muscles muscles are what humans have to yeah, yeah, yeah. Real things. Superman doesn't need big muscles. He's yeah. already strong because he's an alien. Remember when, like, even th- look at Brandon Routh, right? Superman Returns. Yeah, he was <laughs> largely being Christopher Reeve. Um, yeah. Physique and look wise. Yeah, Christopher Reeve's physique made an awful lot more sense than Henry Cavill's mm. does. But it's like, oh mm. no, huge buff guys with massive pecs and massive biceps are what superheroes are meant to look like now because yeah. that's what Marvel do. But let's, but let's be honest, Henry Cavill's a good looking guy. 
I get it. Dreamy eyes. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> he's listen. not Paul Walker, Scott. No, he's not Paul Walker. He's but. not Paul Walker, Scott. I know. Paul Walker is um, Paul Walker is to you as Ryan Gosling is to me, Scott. <laughs> we're, we're 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 gradually establishing that. But Henry Henry Cavill's one of those where I'm like, I get it. I get who he's appealing to purely from a visual sense. I'm like, Henry Cavill's a handsome guy. Come on, I get it, and I get why you want him to look buff. But that in and of itself encapsulates the problem with DC is that they're obsessed with the visual aspect of stuff and they're not thinking about it from a satisfying fundamental filmmaking point of view. Yeah, it also makes you wonder, wonder how, and be grateful for the fact, but wonder how Christopher Nolan got to make the films he made. Oh yeah. my God, I know it, exactly. Because like, how did that same studio make the two of them? Like, because those films, the Batman films are so good and they're so unlike the first <laughs> Can, couple of the well, books the, the way I'd couch it is this, how did they go from that to Suicide Squad? Because I eventually <laughs> managed to catch up with Suicide Squad despite my better judgement. And all it did was confirm my suspicion is that, look, I've been very selective about the Marvel films. I I was one of those people who, when Marvel showed that timeline, when they first oh, released the that timeline, 800 planned films, 800 plan, their planned timeline, I was one of the, I was in that first wave of people going, that i've got no time for marvel but i took a step back from myself and i thought okay no honestly okay i get it and marvel aren't making films for me but i understand that the people they're making films for they've got respect for the people they're making films for and they're trying to make the best films they can for those people while at the still time at the same time sorry still trying to make this accessible to the mass market because at the end of the day they're a business and there's a reason why they're succeeding as a good job of it Exactly. And I have dipped in and out of the Marvel films as I've seen fit, and I've been largely rewarded for that. So Doctor Strange intrigued me because it was so out of the ordinary, and I was vaguely... Yeah, something a bit different. That's yeah, it's a little bit out of the ordinary. I was vaguely aware of when people started talking about the Doctor Strange animated series, I'm like, I'm vaguely... Rem- I don't know if it was ever shown over here, but I know I know of I that. I think I saw it. I could yeah. Ideas of it being on yeah. Cartoon Cavalcade or something. And it was so far out of what you would expect, and the point at which I'm like, okay, the cynic says all they're doing is mining minor characters now, but I actually give them the benefit of the doubt on the basis of the effort they've put into the other films that they're actually mining what they think might be quite interesting from a character point of view. And I really enjoyed Doctor Strange for what it was. And I'm in a position with Marvel movies where there are a huge swathe of Marvel movies that I haven't gone out of my way to see and I'm not really that interested in. But if someone said to me, let's sit and watch this Marvel movie, I'd say, yeah, cool, because... I probably know that I'd at le- I have a base expectation that I know is going to be met and I cannot say the same for post-Nolan DC movies. Yeah, um, I think both Scott and Let, I... Let's watch Suicide um, Squad sounds like a threat to me. <laughs> Suicide Squad's pretty bad. Uh, both Scott and I were a lot more positive on Batman versus Superman than pretty much anybody else, it seems. Um, and mm. it was way better I, than I'm intrigued by that on the basis of the discussion you guys had about it, but I remain sceptical. Yeah, well, I would certainly think that what yeah. it doesn't need is the three-hour director's cut that it has. I would avoid that by all, um, by every way you could. Um, I mean, that's actually they've been very self-indulgent, but they don't really know what they're doing. Whereas, the, but then at the same thing, the same studio this this year produced Wonder Woman, which up until the final act is really, really good. Mm. What is happening? I wasn't sold on Wonder Woman throughout, but I would definitely. I, I was disappointed by it, but it was still still on a par with. Man of Steel, from my perspective, in that I went into Man of Steel with lowered expectations and came out with more than I expected. Went into Wonder Woman with high expectations and came out with less than I expected. But I still think of the DC movies that I've seen, 
post-Nolan still represents the best of that material that I have borne witness yeah. to, if that makes if that makes sense. My proclivity, my recently discovered proclivity for just looking at Gal Gadot in the Wonder Woman costume aside, I, I do think there is a glimmer of hope there in the decisions that DC made. And again, it would be easy to be cynical about it and say, okay, yeah, they've gone for a female director because now they've suddenly realised that they should at least make a token effort to match uh, some of the forward thinking that DC have had. But there is enough evidence of hope in the direction that DC are now looking to take with some of their stuff in Wonder Woman that Mm -hmm. I... I'm I'm worried that Justice League will have squandered that, but in terms of like the the proximity of production between Wonder Woman and Justice League, I think I can probably give them the benefit of the doubt and say, okay, well, obviously they were both in the pipeline, pretty much filmed back to back. That DC didn't have time to react to the reaction to Wonder s- Woman in terms of what they were doing with Justice League. I don't know. If there's um, course correct. There's scene at the there's a scene at the beginning of Justice League which doesn't very very much feels like it was filmed to fit in because of how well Wonder Woman was received that right. managed to give this character extra things to do. Right. There's a, a bank robbery that she foils at the, with a bomb that she foils at the start of the film. Uh-huh. Um, and that feels like that was put in to give that character more because like, oh wait, people really liked that film and it was mm. people responded well to it. Well, that wouldn't surprise me but given that the fact that the, the, the volume of reshoots and stuff they did for this, that the opportunity would be there for that. Mm-hmm. But you would have to imagine that the vast majority of this film wouldn't have been able to take into account quite how successful Wonder Woman proved to be. So I'm prepared not to be cynical about um, the decisions they made around Wonder Woman, actually. And I still have hope that they will course correct in time and take on board the great salient advice that we personally are willing to give them for free (laughs) in pointing out things that nobody else... Absolutely, that like nobody that. else has thought to say about these movies other than us, <laughs> uh, and that they will take on board the advice that I know all the big wigs at DC listen to this podcast, um, and they will, in particular, be excited about the fact that this is my triumphant return to the Fuds on Film podcasting. And they won't listen so much to the both of you, but they will listen to me, who hasn't actually seen this film, and appreciate <laughs> <laughs> appreciate the error of their ways. And finally make Herbert J. McFlooster Jr. colon the revenge. <laughs> but there you go. So Yeah, I just I'm hoping they can course correct you say Craig. And I'm still waiting on Marvel's big failure mm. monetarily. I don't think it's mm. gonna be Infinity War, but it character wise ought to because what they've decided is there weren't enough characters in America as Captain America yeah. Civil War because now they've got all the characters in the world. So. I haven't been as unexcited by a Marvel trailer as I have by Infinity War. And I haven't been that excited by any Marvel trailers. I've been pleasantly surprised when I finally got around to watching Guardians of the Galaxy to go, actually, yeah, that's quite good. And then really crushed by Guardians of the Galaxy 2, which I thought was pretty pants, to be honest with you. I felt the other way around about those two. Really? But even the trailer for Guardians of the Galaxy 2, I thought, cool, more of the same, great. And then I saw Infinity War. And obviously what was supposed to be the big hurrah moment at the end of, who are you guys? It's the Guardians of the Galaxy. Great, because 375 main characters wasn't enough. Now we've got 380. characters, it's it's intolerable. And and even just, I mean, I, I understand at least partly the fan service thing. It's like people like these cards so want to see them. Mm-hmm. But And I know that Infinity Wars, it's at least two films. If it yeah. stretched to three, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. It's like, oh, is that a two-part? I was going to say, because yeah, I'm sure let, let's say, parts. for argument's sake, two and a half hours tops to deal with yeah, all these um, characters in a satisfying plot development and character development way isn't going to be enough. 
Yeah, even for people who like those characters, they have to realise, well, no, you can't just keep adding characters because you, you have to have the characters have something to do. Yeah. At some point, the logical the logical conclusion of this is that every working actor in Hollywood at some point gets together for a 20-hour Marvel movie, <laughs> which is just as every That's character... phase five of the cinematic universe, I think. Phase five of the DC cinematic universe will be just this one, and it'll be a Steven Soderbergh film shot on 16mm handheld... Um, for budget, budget, basically for budgetary reasons, where every working actor in Hollywood is portraying a Marvel character, <laughs> and um, they're just all at a convention, shrugging their shoulders because they don't know what they're doing. Now, I'm genuinely concerned about this potential upcoming merger between Disney and Fox, which even by the time this goes out may have gone through, mm-hmm. because I just what what I'm thinking is that the Marvel Cinematic Universe needs more characters. Yeah, but you know that there will be a crossover if they get the X Men characters and Fantastic Four. It's, it's a concern one that I'm trying not to worry myself too much about because I don't I mean, have that much invested in any of any of the franchises here to watch anymore. Them, but it's I've even, like... Yeah, I've even detached myself from Star Wars. So honestly, it's like whatever, whatever they want to do, that's fine. And if you want to consume it, that's fine. I'm not going to judge you. But consolidation of any market to the degree that looks largely likely to go ahead with this big this merger that we're talking about, I. Oh, is unlikely to do anything great for creativity. Yep. But Disney aren't doing a bad job with the Star Wars movies. Marvel aren't doing a bad job with their films. At the very least, I would expect some competent, entertaining material to come out of it. So, whatever. Um, if they want to saturate the market, knock themselves out. We are consumers and we have a choice that we make with our wallets. Yes. And I've killed that conversation. <laughs> I just had a horrible thought about the fact that Fox also and aliens and predators so i'm just waiting for captain uh, america versus the aliens versus the predators versus wolverine versus magneto versus darth vader i was going to say at what point come on drew get to the star wars bit versus <laughs> versus daisy ridley what versus the Ewoks. <laughs> versus kira knightley yeah that's <laughs> it with who are they going to resurrect in cg for that gandhi yes, <laughs> yes. versus gandhi <laughs> <laughs> Gandhi has already been resurrected in film in South Park, so I'd something else. Uh, oh, Jesus. Moving swiftly on, or not so swiftly. We've just spent about 40 minutes talking about I Justice League. I, I, I tried to be quick. Uh, I know. Uh, Drew, I guess we're going to talk about Paddington 2 now. Yes, yes. Um, Though not quite so cherished as classics like Bagpuss or the Cosgrove Hall animations, the adventures of a delightful, mishap-prone, marmalade-devouring, duffel-coat-wearing bear from Darkest Peru are something I remember from my childhood with great fondness. As well as the charming stop-motion animations by Ivor Wood with their cardboard cutout backdrops, and Michael Bond's original books of course, I remember Paddington as just being a part of the fabric of my childhood, from the instantly recognisable stuffed toys to his role as a mascot for a medical charity. All of which is to say that, really, when I saw the trailer for Paul King's 2014 live-action CG animated Paddington film, I was, at best, apprehensive. While the lovable Ursine had a propensity for getting himself into trouble, the trailer suggested a considerably more slapstick take than I remember the animation from my childhood having more appropriate to say Mr Bean than to Paddington, but I need not have feared. It wasn't hugely consequential, but it was a perfectly enjoyable family film that is sure to have introduced a new generation to the well-mannered, well-intentioned and utterly hapless bear, and his stern stare. The film was a critical and commercial success, 
so this year's sequel, aptly named Paddington 2, was both, <laughs> <laughs> was both expected and actually welcome. Certainly my grumpy old man heart was more than willing to open itself up to more of the furry little fella's shenanigans. After an opening scene showing the perilous events which caused the young cub to come into the care of his Aunt Lucy, Imelda Staunton, and Uncle Pastuzzo, Michael Gambon, we find Paddington firmly ensconced within the Brown family in London, and we are treated to a day in his life as his presence and care for others enriches the lives of his friends and neighbours. He visits his friend Mr Gruber's, a ludicrously accented Jim Broadbent's antique shop to find an appropriate gift for Aunt Lucy's birthday, and, finding the gift he wants, a classic pop-up book of London, a bit out of his price range, he starts a series of odd jobs, which naturally sees him get into his usual scrapes. Somewhere in the middle of this, he crosses paths as one with one Phoenix Buchanan, a wonderfully hammy Hugh Grant, a washed-up stage actor who also wants the book, but because he knows that it contains clues to the location of a lost treasure trove. <laughs> Just get it out, tell us! <laughs> See when you stop and think about it, Paddington is fucking mental. You <laughs> <laughs> see that tweet going around Twitter about how somebody heard somebody say that the the, the prison scenes aren't realistic. You know the prison scenes where the talking bear helps the inmates make marmalades. <laughs> like, but they want to brawl on cell block ninety nine or something. <laughs> they wanted a realistic prison scene with a CG bear. <laughs> <laughs> this is the scum too. What's going on? <laughs> what they want is Paddington going. I'm the daddy now, Mister Brown. St- <laughs> what they wanted was an actual animal factory St- and stabbing him in the chest with like a Stanley blade melted into a toothbrush. <laughs> <laughs> the present scenes are realistic enough. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try and carry on about creating corpses. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, this oh Phoenix, though. sandwiches and get on with it. Oh, I'm sorry I missed that particular wave of Twitter criticism. That's come as quite a revelation to me. I'm sorry. I'm gonna... I'll just go over this paragraph again. I think it might be easier to pick up here. Somewhere in the middle of this, he crosses paths with one Phoenix Buchanan, a wonderfully hammy Hugh Grant, a washed-up stage actor who also wants the book, but because he knows that it contains clues to the location of a lost treasure trove. This phoenix, though, is a badden, a rum fella, no mistake. And just when our hero has accrued, accrued enough money to buy the book, he witnesses a disguised Buchanan stealing it and, after failing to catch him, finds himself accused then convicted of the crime and sent to prison. In prison, his earnestness, innocence and huge heart quickly earn him friends, even with Brendan Gleeson's fearsome cook Knuckles, 
who he wins as a friend when he exposes the hard man to the simple delights of Mama Laid. While on the outside, the Brown family attempt to ascertain the identity of the mysterious thief, and life in Paddington Street gets generally worse and more mean-spirited due to his absence, inside the prison, Paddington is persuaded to take part in an escape attempt. You can probably guess what the final destination of the story is. It's how they get there that contains the joy, so say no more about the story. What's important to know is that it is very entertaining and very funny. Paddington 2 gets off to a fairly slow start, but soon draws you in. It's not cloying, mawkish or overtly sentimental, save for the final scene, during which my eyes were absolutely not, I repeat, not a little moist. Do you hear? Not. Um, (laughs) And it's completely devoid of cynicism. It's a genuinely lovely family film. And I think I can now even forgive Ben Wishaw, who voices Paddington, for the atrocities he committed in the name of Ton Teekfer's perfume. Uh-huh. What perfume? I don't, I don't think you saw perfume, but it was a very bad film from like 2000. And oh, okay. Something. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. I thought you were talking about a perfume advert or something. No, 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 no. Tom Teekfer's perfume, a story of a murderer. I do, I do apologise. Yes, I am I, aware of this film, but I didn't see it. Um, a terrible, terrible, terrible film that I believe mm. Scott and I both left the cinema very angry about because it was so terrible. I have yes. vague, re- I know I haven't seen it. I've got <laughs> vague recollections about you guys having hated it and also some that I work with who's not a particular cinemaphile and who likes Michelle Rodriguez films and the Fast and Furious <laughs> franchise in particular, <laughs> saying that she absolutely loved it, which broadsided me after what you guys had said. But I will take your word over hers. <laughs> oh dear. Dear God. I've not seen Barrington 2, but we'd like to just maybe correct some something that has been out there since I reviewed that um, Goodbye Christopher Robin, where I said that Winnie the Pooh is a garbage bear for garbage people. And he still is, but I had forgotten that Rupert the Bear is actually much worse. Mm. What a total dick. What a tartan appropriating knob end Rupert yes, the Bear also, is. Also, Rupert um, the Bear is in... Um, is in the Daily Express, and the Daily Express is the worst of things. It's even yes. worse than the Daily Mail. So I, I uh, say that as someone who had Rupert the Bear audiobooks on cassette that he was very fond of to the point where about five years ago, I tracked down and bought one of those uh, audiobooks on cassette from eBay and also something with a cassette deck in it to play it on because I didn't yeah. own such a thing. And purely <laughs> out of nostalgia, listened back to it and thought, oh yeah, Rupert the Bear's a bit shit, isn't he? So... Yes. I also have not seen Paddington 2, however, as uh, the parent of a four-year-old child who absolutely loves the first Paddington movie and who is desperate to see Paddington 2, anyone who, uh, I, or sorry, I'm rather, I'm willing to um, believe um, or invest in the opinion of anyone uh, of the numerous people who appreciated the first movie who also appreciate the second, uh, I will invest in that opinion and I am quite happy at some point in the next couple of weeks to take my daughter to go and see this one. Because the look the look of joy in her face and nice film, Craig. Totally. And I super enjoyed watching it with her. The the it's one of those rare films which, like you say, absolutely hundred percent non cynical will appeal to has got to appeal to even the most hardened cynic like myself, right? to be able to sit there, regardless of whether or not you're sitting watching it with a four-year-old who's cackling their backside off in the most like genuine and unfiltered way. Um, I uh, am, can only imagine that if I'd watched the first Paddington film on my own, I would have enjoyed it surely just as much anyway, and I would be as invested as I am now in uh, finding the time to go uh, either on my own, frankly, or uh, with the little one uh, to go and see Paddington yeah. too. 
the first one I thought was was okay. I mean, I wasn't blown away by it. It was okay. I enjoyed. Oh, it I really time. liked it. Um, whereas I enjoyed the second one a great deal more. Um, really, and I, I quite liked the first one. So yeah, um, cool. It's got a bit less of the kind of slapstick stuff that you know the first one has. That scene with the the bath being flooded and that sort of yes. thing, that, which was the sort of was what put me off in the trailer. Actually, that was a little bit stuff. OTT, but yeah. Um, so there's a bit less of that. It's a bit more kind of like, there's a bit more action rather than kind of slapsticky farce sort of stuff like that. Yeah. But the rest, of it, it's just got such great heart and. Um, and and the people in it are properly invested in it. There's you know, Sanjeev Bhaskar and his wife Mira Sayal, and there's Tom Conte and and a bunch of other people. Just they're just having fun. It's like one the one thing I probably really didn't like about the original Paddington was the is Nicole Kidman. Yeah, who was terrible and basically doing the same sort of character that she did in the Golden Compass. Mm. Um, and that this film doesn't have. Because this film has Hugh Grant as the villain set, and he's just playing up, and he gets the film, and he's just having a yeah. laugh. He's, just, he's been over the top, and he's meant to be, and it's great. And most people in it are just, it's, it's just warm and nice, and it's just nice to have something that doesn't have cynicism to it, because I'm a cynical old bastard. What were we going to talk about next? Okay, I was going to quickly mention The Disaster Artist. Oh, hi, Drew. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't have anything prepared for this, but just, uh, I'm... Scott informs us that we'll probably be talking about this in a future compare and contrast with something you can't quite remember, but that's fine. Um, probably Edward. Mm, that makes sense. Ah, yes. Um, you've been watching the Red Letter Media stuff this week as well, then. <laughs> yeah, uh, Disaster Artist. I have not, in fact, yet seen The Room. It's, I've had it on my hard drive to watch for a long time. Uh, Damn. Very famously, one of the worst, best films, best worst films, you know, um, entertainingly terrible films ever made. This is James Franco's I mean, James Franco's take on the story of the making of the room. So how well it compares to what's actually in the room, I don't know. I'd just like to say quite simply is that I found this a kind of warm and quite entertaining film. James Franco is pretty much doing an impersonation of Tommy Wiseau, the singular star of the room. There's some doubt as to whether it really goes into the warts and all of quite how apparently manipulative a character Tommy Wiseau was. It's an entertaining film. I can testify that it's still very enjoyable if you've not seen The Room, because I haven't seen The Room and I very much enjoyed it. And it's possibly the best acting I've seen from James Franco in, well, honestly, probably ever. But uh, certainly a very long time, I find that James Franco doesn't tend to leave a particularly strong impression on me in most things he's in. Uh, mm-hmm. maybe 127 hours I was going to say with the exception of 127 hours was his yeah. most impactful role because even like, things that I've liked him in like for instance Pineapple Express <laughs> um, he's basically a stoner character and Seth Rogen's considerably funnier it doesn't feel like a stretch for James Franco yes, playing no, a stoner character um, in a comedy yeah uh, his bizarre two minute appearance in Alien Covenant what mm-hmm. was going on with that why was he even in that film because he really wanted to play a piece <laughs> of toast Yes, apparently, um, because the, the, the ship fire inside of cryotubes. But yes, I would recommend the the Disaster Artist to anyone. Entertaining film, really quite funny. And what is interesting about it is it's quite touching in parts. I There's a scene, I don't think it spells it, the premiere of The Room, which turns which Tommy Wiseau put something like $6 million into, despite being something worthy of something, somebody shot on the phone in a weekend the whole and it's completely over the top the way the audience are laughing and the way that no audience has ever laughed in the history of audiences but uh, his character is 
is um, really hurt by this. And I actually, during the scene, I found myself genuinely feeling bad about um, for this character and suddenly doubting that I was a, thinking I was a very terrible person for all the times I've laughed at, for instance, Red Letter Media's Best of the Worst uh, when they make fun of bad films because I'm like, yeah, I feel really bad about this now. And I don't know if that's just the story or I, I think it's a lot to do with James Franco's really rather human portrayal of Tommy Wiseau mm. that I felt so bad about this. I had nothing prepared, so I'm trying to wing this just now, but it, it's an entertaining film and it, one I would recommend. And if, quite the given everything's going to be sought by Star Wars in the next week, it's one of the options that's out yeah. there just now that's quite different from that. I am as disinterested as I can be in the disaster artist because I have been over the room for a long time now. And actually, from what I've seen of the disaster artist, leaves a um, or it makes me feel like I would leave that with a bit of a sour taste in my mouth. I I think I first watched The Room, I wasn't like, I'm not going to try and claim to be first wave Room kind of thing, because you would have to have been living in LA um, in sort of 2002, 2003 yeah. to claim anything along those lines. But I think about 2006, I want to say I first saw The Room when it first started to gain, first started to gain cult status probably outside of that immediate vicinity. And yeah, it's a really bad film. And Tommy was a terrible filmmaker and like a bizarre character. And everybody was happy to make fun of Tommy Wiseau. And then since then, the sort of mythology around that film has consumed everything. And everybody involved in that film has come round to a different way of thinking than they apparently felt at the time when it was released and it started to be this midnight movie success. Uh And Tommy Wiseau cottoned on to the fact and decided to retrofit the narrative of why that film was made as to, oh, no, actually, I always intended it to be a black comedy. And I don't think, I think I might have watched it once since then with somebody who was really interested to see it and we sat and watched it again and that... best would have been about seven years ago or something that probably last watched the room right and with the disaster with the disaster artist coming around now i kind of feel like we've come full circle from everybody wanting to make fun of tommy Wiseau to everybody at the time and everybody now buying into this narrative and being actually really deferential to him and almost like oh we want to pay respect to and it's become this big cult thing where I honestly feel like these are the same people who were laughing at him um, 10 years ago or thereabouts and have more respect for them just to have maintained the attitude of The Room is a freak show of a movie and it is up there with Plan 9 from Outer Space in terms of here's how bad a film can be when someone who clearly has some sort of passion for performance in filmmaking, but clearly fundamentally does not understand what filmmaking is or what filmmaking does and invests themselves and is sadly invested in a dream of making it big becomes. But we are now going to facilitate that with a movie that we are going to make more money off, off of this movie, paying deference now to that. And under the guise of having some sort of respect for that source material, when I know that those those people 10, 13 years ago were pissing themselves about this weird movie that this weird guy 
who claims to be American, who clearly isn't, who is clearly just a bizarre character, mm-hmm. spent $6 million of his own money that he claims to have made from selling leather jackets imported from Korea um, and paying for basically getting any exposure for it by paying for this one billboard to be sat in downtown Hollywood or whatever for like however many years it was to now come round to this thing where we're all supposed to say, oh no, we weren't laughing at him, now we're laughing with him, just leaves this weird taste in my mouth. And and I'm I'm past the room and I'm sure that The Disaster Artist in and of itself is probably a good film, but I'm not interested in the room anymore. I laughed at it 10 years ago and I'm done laughing at it now. Um, I I have never seen the room. Um, I'm Mm. only vaguely Mm. aware of it as being this thing that... Um, people laugh at and there's like cult screenings that he now attends people throwing plastic spoons at and stuff and yeah the um the the book it's based on is written by his co-star greg Greg, yeah whatever his name is it's not based Mm. on his take on it it's based on his co-star's take on it and it's yeah you're saying like the sort of the mythology around this stuff again i am almost entirely unaware of it yep. so i don't have that baggage i find it difficult to separate myself from reading about what greg sestero said at the time and thereafter in the immediate years thereafter and now having as recently as this morning in the car on my way into work this morning listening to an interview a recent interview with greg sestero in the wake of or in the context of the disaster artist now in the input he's had and how how far apart those two perspectives that that person who was intimately involved in the film has or claims to have had then and now just makes me super mm-hmm. cynical about the whole the whole affair and as makes me more convinced that the room is a bad film and leave it at that if people want to have cult screenings of it that's great but there's something really there's just something really off about treating it in the sense that it's being treated and if you've if you've got no experience with the room already then i think that's probably fine to come into the disaster artist and if it piques your interest in the room you're almost inevitably going to end up watching it but i would say i'm dubious about the mythology that's been built around it and the motivations of the people involved in it now in the context now as opposed Mm -hmm. to what was said and what was claimed about that film at the time that it was made, at the time it was released, and in the couple of years afterwards where it was gaining momentum on the local sort of, just on the LA circuit as a midnight movie that suddenly became this weird breakout cult success. And unless Tommy Wiseau is pulling off the act that's going to beat Tony Clifton as having stayed in character for 14 years, even through a period of about three years where he couldn't have had any clue whatsoever that his performance act was going to actually end up being successful and his plan to make this intentionally bad uh, later to be cult movie um, performance was going to pay off and he couldn't possibly have known that for a period of three years but he decided to stay in character and at some point next year Tommy Wiseau is going to turn around and go I'm so glad I can finally reveal to you that this is me that's not going to happen and unless that happens i'm not going to buy into the motivations of the people who are involved in this part of the process and in what the room has become it's just a terrible film and leave it at that but there you go that's my opinion what a downer films of the year then are we going to discuss each of our films of the year first of all are we all going to throw our hat into the ring with a a nomination for what we think is certifiably our favourite film of the year, even though we've already discussed just off mic there just now that Drew doesn't have any one 
certifiable film of the year. Yes. Cool. <laughs> hey, Scott, what was your film of the year, man? When I was thinking about this, there's probably at least one film I can predict from each of us that will come as the top film of the year. There's three or four that sort of stand out to me. Um, I will pick one at more or less random from the four of my tops, and it will be... Ooh, which one do I want to say? I think I'll go with The Handmaiden. There's, yeah, there's there's four films that I consider sort of a cut above everything else of the year, and The Handmaiden is one of them. Just a, a very beautifully shot, beautifully told, imaginative tale, mm-hmm. uh, which you can refer back to a review from... Uh, when was that? June? May, 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 I think. May, May or June. Yeah, one of those um, two. Yeah. A, a terrific, lovely film with some uh, really fantastic shots uh, and just a really strong narrative and some terrific performances and a nice tale that kind of kept you guessing all the way through it as well. Uh, yeah, a, a, a terrific work and one that I'm particularly fond of and one that I would certainly recommend if you not didn't see it at the time, certainly catch up with that one. Yes, that's um, that's up there for me, Scott, too. It's one of, I have um, on my list of, of the absolute best um Probably eight, um, and a two would definitely come with. You are so non-committal, man. Pick one. Yeah. <laughs> pick pick Neruda, because um, that was my other one that was going to be up there. Yeah, the handmaidens up there for me. Uh, yeah, beautiful film, really interesting story, good performances. Uh, I like Park Chan Wook a lot. It's the only thing, um, and as we discussed in our earlier podcast, Scott, the only thing preventing this being the best of the year for me. Well, apart from the fact that the other film that that I would pick is better, but um, the one you know, downside for this is that that final act, um, as we discussed at the time, there's a a final bit at the end that I just felt was unnecessary, gratuitous in many ways, and it just it kind of took the edge off of it for me. I'd been enjoying it so much up until that point. Other than that, yes, as everything Scott said, um, it is a lovely looking film. Uh, and that's a few particularly striking films this year visually and that's one of them very much so yes what Scott said about The Handmaiden it is good Um, as for my own pick for best of the year Scott rather stole my thunder because yes it's Neruda which when we talked about I wasn't Yes, I had to convince you it was the best film of the year. Oh yes, I I, I realised by by the end of our discussion I realised that yes, I I love this film. And to be Um, fair, if I I was picking one film it would be Neruda, but I figured you'd be better off talking about it because I think you've got a better perspective on it than I do. Yeah, um, Neruda, for those who are not familiar with it, is Pablo Larraín's um, sort of biopic um, (laughs) but also sort of dream story about the great Chilean poet Pablo Neruda and with the fictional detective played by Gael Garcia Bernal who's chasing him and also sort of doesn't exist uh, it's a it's difficult film to describe um, <laughs> screenplay written by Frank Ducks <laughs> it is yeah, a visually interesting film, the performances are superb it's a, it's a really interesting character Neruda I mean I like his poems a lot now that I've read some not as much as I've intended to but read some since uh, this is my film of the year not just because I talked myself into finding it just a, a, a visually and narratively really appealing film that of all the films I've seen this year this is the one that I've thought about most yeah 
I've basically not stopped thinking about it since that that recording that we did, wow. Scott. Well, it's not like it's an everyday thing, but it's come to my head a lot. And I, I mean, for the, for the visually striking films that have been this year, the others of which I suspect we're going to talk about very shortly, it's perhaps the one that I can remember most as well. Most clearly, I, mean, I do have a good memory, so I remember a lot of the films I see, but I can remember the tone of Neruda much more than anything else. And it's a strange film to describe because, yes, it's not exactly a biopic, but it also is, and it sort of has a structure that is based on this poetry, and it sounds like that could be just so pretentious and terrible, yet it's not. It's just really compelling. Performances are a lot to do with that. Really strong direction from Larine, which uh, I didn't expect because before I, I saw Jackie, the story of Jackie Onassis Kennedy, Kennedy Onassis played by Natalie Portman, not long before that. And I thought that was kind of sterile but still interesting. But before that, my only experience of Pablo Larain had been post mortem, which was the brownest, most barricade building film I'd ever <laughs> seen. Um, and it was terrible kudos to its 800 day long barricading building scene yeah it's I don't know this must be horrendous for anybody listening to it. I'm sorry Neruda's a really good film watch it's my film of the year here we go <laughs> Craig <laughs> save us okay so my selection my comes wittering. my selection comes with the caveat that I saw four films in cinemas this year and um, even at that recollection Scott had to tease two of them out of me and I've forgotten those again now so <laughs> at cinemas this year I saw Dunkirk I saw Alien Covenant you saw Logan, I saw Logan with you Drew and I saw which we talked about in a, a particularly well produced podcast episode. Well, I think the production value of that podcast will perhaps only be um truly appreciated after our own lifetimes um when people realize that the insertion of the message alert tones from your phone were, were pure art well to my mind well exactly i remember thinking this is the best produced podcast in the history of the world because we did it in a pub <laughs> and we had a free flow of, <laughs> free flow of alcohol in front of us throughout um and i'm sure the quality of the finished product reflects that um, uh, yeah, and Blade Runner 2049 and uh, only one of those films uh, was I invested in being a success and allowed myself only the smallest sliver of a of a chance uh, that it would live up to my expectation and that would be a Blade Runner, which um, the original Blade Runner being perhaps, I think, I, I think at the time and as much as these lists always change, I think I, I listed it as my put a gun to my head, it's my second favourite movie of all time. And so news that finally uh, a belated sequel was finally going in pr- into production after all the hype of um, previous abortive attempts and the sort of the failed sequel novels and whatnot that were produced, which I attempted to read or remember at the time that they were released and just thinking this is the biggest pile of trash, why are you why are you why are you defecating all over the, the genius of this of this um wonderful work of art and so eventually after numerous years and changing numerous hands I thought okay Blade Runner 2049 is finally going ahead with Alcon Entertainment and I'm like okay they'll dump a load of money on this it's going to be this is going to be a bit of a crapshoot isn't it well they've got uh, Denis Villeneuve to direct oh 
oh, that's interesting because I'm hearing oh, good things about Arrival, which is coming down the pipeline at the minute, and really, really liked Sicario. Wasn't sold on Prisoners, but have got the most interesting love-hate relationship with Enemy, which I will, from day to day, alternate between thinking is an amazing piece of work and also, and, and then the next day thinking, actually, no, I hate that film and haven't been so torn <laughs> by a film in years and haven't felt the need to come back to a film so frequently ever and still not have made up my mind about what I think about it, which I think in and of itself says something about a piece of art. And I'm thinking, wow, okay, at least the people behind us are invested in actually delivering good product. <laughs> at least they're not at least they're not getting Zack Snyder on board. Um, yeah, I know exactly. I'm being flippant now because, yeah, obviously in an alternate timeline, I'd like to see what Zack Snyder did with this because now on the, you know, having come out the other end of Blade Runner 2049, uh, I, I've, I have come to um, see it as my film of the year. For given values of film of the year, whatever that represents to you personally, I'm not saying it's the best, absolutely not the best, it's the film of the year I've enjoyed the most and appreciated the most for, for reasons I'll get to in a minute. But then it was announced that my certified man crush Ryan Gosling was on board. Oh, oh, you had me you had me at Villeneuve, but now I'm really interested and now I'm starting to worry that I should get my hopes <laughs> up a bit. But actually, at the same time, I'm a little bit worried because I'm not sure how Gosling's going to fit into that universe if that doesn't sound daft. And then the more I thought about it, I thought, actually, when it comes to that detached, when it comes to that sort of quiet, detached, masculine performance uh, that probably I can see them going in the direction of with whatever character this guy's going to play, I think about Drive and how, how, much alive dri- how much I love Drive and how much that changed my opinion of Ryan Gosling. It made me want to ask for his hand in marriage. And I'm like, okay. I still really don't want to get my hopes up, though, because when was the last time a sequel to something I actually loved live up to the hype? And I don't count... January. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Why, what was... Wait, what? What? Sorry, because one of my films of the year was a sequel, and it oh, cool. really surprised me. So we'll get on yeah, to no, because obviously I appreciate it. Toy Story 2 is a better film than Toy Story, and... 50% of people I speak to consider Godfather 2 Part 2 to be better than Godfather Part 1. And, yeah. And I'm like, I'm totally on board with that, but I'm not emotionally invested in those films as I am with Blade Runner. And I still really don't want to get my hopes up because I don't want to have my heart broken. And then <laughs> Harrison Ford's coming on board. Well, there's a double-edged sword, especially having just watched The Force Awakens where I feel like he was in a no-man's land between kind of really interested in the paycheck here, but at the same time I want to feel... I felt like he wanted to make half an effort, but at the same time, it was pretty clear that written into his contract was, I want a dump truck of money to turn up outside my house, and you'd better kill me off because I am not interested in ever coming back to these films. So, having just rewatched The Force Awakens, though, Craig, I actually enjoyed his performance a lot right. more um, on a rewatch. So, I, I haven't rewatched it yet, so I'll, I will get around um, to that soon, and I'm, I'm sure I'll. I felt much the same as you the first time I saw The Force Awakens, mm. but I rewatched it in yeah. preparation for The Last Jedi, and actually, nah. I think there's a bit more of a performance there than I expected. I think my opinion of it was soured by how I felt about what they did with the character and what I perceived to be a cheap attempt to get emotional investment from people without actually earning it in the oh, first place. I agree with that, but that's a, that was a right yeah. performance issue. Yeah. Um, and so it came that I took the time out to sit and go to the cinema. And it wasn't even immediately, because that opening of Blade Runner 2049, which was based on which immediately I was like, all right, okay. 
definitely in terms of deference to the source material, this was a planned scene from the first movie, which was excised, this whole thing of turning up at the out-of-city protein farm thing and this image of the the sort of out of time image of this pot of soup boiling in the stove was like a really strong image from I think it might even have been the first draft of Hampton Fancher's script for the first film okay so clearly they've been invested in actually the source material and stuff and then I think about half an hour in there was this moment where this feeling washed over me and I just felt like I can relax now at the very least this is going to be a really really good film and I think by, because what was the runtime on that? Two and three quarter hours? It really didn't feel like it. And by the end of Blade Runner 2049, I came out of the cinema and I had come close, I had come close to tears at least twice. And on one of those occasions, it was actually almost out of pure relief that I felt like I can't point to any other example of a film like this that I care about actually having been treated with respect and like the 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 deference that is required, but also having been the sequel having been handed to a skilled filmmaker who has who has done justice to the original, but also taken it in a direction that is very certifiably their own, and still produced just what what I think is still a really great piece of art. I don't think it's as good a film as the original. But in terms of my expectation, what I dare to hope for, and having my expectations met, and in a lot of respects exceeded, I think there are elements of this film that are better than the original. I don't think it's necessarily... All of them. No, I don't think it's necessarily a better movie than the original. But in in terms of what I could have hoped for and what this film turned out to be, I ended up seeing it three times in the cinema, and... I I was finding different things and I was finding myself having different interpretations of stuff throughout and like to to my surprise I found myself emotionally invested in Harrison Ford's cam, uh, character and while we're still in that uh, is it is it safe to talk about with spoilers limited spoilers if we talk about the point at which um the character of uh, of Rachel is resurrected by Nyander Wallace uh a new uh, replica of Rachel. We're still in that uncanny valley. It didn't bother me as much as I know it it did you guys, because it's still, I think... Really bothered me. It's basically Grand Moff Tarkin in Blade Runner. It was terrible. I think that's a totally throwaway comment, because it was clearly a better example. Grand Moff Tarkin looked like a cartoon. This was and this was looked like a cartoon. No, I do not see any difference between. Was them. still obviously CGI, but it's still the best example I think I've seen of it, and it didn't detract enough from the scene that I still felt invested enough in Harrison Ford that I got really upset at the point at which he turned around and said her eyes were green, and understanding what it was that he was turning away from and what he was turning his back on and what had been offered to him in that moment and stuff, and that that was the real point at which that film sold itself to me and I'm like thank you Denny Villeneuve thank you Harrison Ford because my heart would have been broken tenfold if Harrison Ford had turned up and done a paycheck performance for that film Um, and the film has a great number of flaws but I feel like the parts of it that needed to fall into place absolutely needed to fall into place and by the time the denouement comes round and Harrison Ford's uh, near the end of the film, turns to Ryan Gosling's character and says, and what about you? What am I to you? And at that point, I thought, I could stand up and walk out of this cinema now and I am as happy as a clam. 
But at the same time, I just want to burst into tears. I was so happy about that film on so many levels and what it delivered. And I know people have had very different experiences with that film. I know there's a lot of criticism about the film uh, and its portrayal of female characters. I think that sort of stuff, if you take on a case-by-case basis, I think this is an example of a film where... I don't want to get into in any depth about it in this podcast in particular. We can do that another day. But I do feel like the portrayal of female characters is justified in context. And I still found myself thinking that there was something far more satisfying about the female characters in this movie than ever there was in the first. I think that's one of this film's strengths over the first film. Um, certainly viewing the first film through um, uh, the the modern lens of objectification now. Uh, and I can't think of an example of a film where I've come out of a cinema feeling not just as relieved but as fulfilled by a film and an expectation that I dare not keep or dare not hold of a film as I did with this and I was absolutely over the moon um, I've pre-ordered just about every version imaginable of this film for delivery and Absolutely. Is it the best piece of filmmaking that was seen in a cinema this year? Of course it was not. But to me personally, it's the best experience I've had in a cinema in a long, long time. And people will be laughing at me because I'm sitting here talking about almost crying at Harrison Ford, but keep in mind I still cry at Jungle Book. Man, I'll cry at the drop of a hat these days. Excuse me, I will not resent anybody trying the Jungle Book because the Jungle Book is lovely. Mm. Other films we may have we we may have different opinions on, but not the Jungle Book. Not the Jungle no. Book. No. That just shows you human. No, Poor exactly. Blue. But I was in in some sense in some senses I didn't really care about other people's opinions about it. But in other senses, I was actually quite relieved to hear you guys actually quite enjoyed it because I was prepared for you both to absolutely wail on it. And then when I listen to the podcast, I'm like, oh god, at least they're like vaguely on board. Um, but I understand that the uh, I'm not trying to be like super. Blade Runner fanboy because I'm sure there are people who hold the original in far more reverence than I do and stuff but genuinely emotionally it was the biggest payoff for a film for me this year but for personal reasons if not for necessarily pure filmmaking reasons and I've no doubt that if I sat down and I went and watched Neruda now I would I would come out of Neruda and think that is an objectively better piece better piece of filmmaking than Blade Runner 2049 and I fucking hate the title Blade Runner 2049 I hate sticking a number on the end of something I hate sticking a year on the end of something I'm like could you not have come up with something more original than that um, the, the name's a bit crap but to be honest name's terrible. I never really kept the it name's terrible in the poster I nearly cried when the poster came out I was so disappointed with that poster artwork I'm like oh my god your first day using Photoshop and you did this it's Blade Runner you <laughs> dick um, and then I saw then I saw that Tomb Raider poster with. Um, Are you deliberately swearing just to make Scott's editing job that much more difficult? Or? Mate, what is it? Generate tone, yeah. Generate tone, generate sign tone. Not a problem. Aye, so there you go. I've waffled on for far too long about that, but that's what that's why I chose Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Um, I also really, I also really enjoyed Dunkirk, but I know that you've got differing opinions on that. I would say I was certainly more than just vaguely on board with Blade Runner 2049. It's one of my films oh, of year too. Um, yeah. I, I remember, I remember mine, yes. being a bit more... It's the sort of film that's quite easy to nitpick, and I think I got into yeah. that trap, and I didn't particularly want to, but it's kind of easy when you start talking about it to kind of like focus on the negatives. But It, it totally it, is. In the grand scheme of things, it's a fantastic piece of filmmaking. It looks absolutely beautiful, and I was moved uh-huh. by it. 
mm. in a way that have not been since. Uh, well, if you, there's a reason you pay Roger Deakins fat cash. Yeah, exactly. Um, mm. Yeah, it, it was an incredible film, and it is, it is one of my top films of the year, easily. Uh-huh. Mm. I, I I was almost disappointed when they announced Roger Deakins as well, because I felt like at that point it's like Roger Deakins is coming aboard as cinematographer. For some reason, at that point, I'm like, okay, now you're just trying to buy my opinion ahead of the film. <laughs> because I almost felt like getting Roger Deakins on board to shoot a film is a bit of a cop-out, right? I'd almost, I almost would rather that I'd seen Hoyt Van Hoytema or something like that, like someone who's gaining traction and who I think will probably will think of as the next Roger Deakins. I almost wanted them to show me they were invested in it by taking a risk on an upcoming talent or like a, just mm-hmm. an, a, tab, a talent that was beginning to establish itself rather than just going... Tell you what, well, we're chucking $170 million or what about, we might as well get Deacons on board there. <laughs> because that's just a given, right? That, and it, I've been flipping about it, but it is just a given. If if I turned around tomorrow and said, uh, here's my kitchen sink, I've got like $10 million or something, I think I might get Roger Deacons to come and film it. Roger Deacons would make <laughs> my kitchen sink look like a Van Gogh. It's not a problem. Um, and I almost wish they hadn't have done that. But again, he... Uh, Visually, that film, I'm um, just happy as a clam. I don't know what else to say. I don't know yeah. what else to say. I certainly wouldn't compare it to um, a painting by Van Gogh because, well, I think his paintings are terrible. It's not an artist I care for, but the art of this film I do particularly care for. It's it's up there for me for a film of the year. It was never going to be my film of the year thing. I had too many caveats about it. But just as a film to look at, it's enough for me. I I mentioned it when we talked about it earlier in the year. I genuinely this is a film where I could I could turn the sound off and just look at totally. it. From the very beginning, from that opening shot on the on Dave Bautista's farm. Mm. It's just beautiful. There are problems I had with it, which we talked about and it's not even so much nitpicky, I think it's but it's even if it is it's cumulative. Uh-huh. It stops it being really great for me. There's uh, Sylvia Hook's character I don't think is great. Mm. I have no idea why Leander Wallace is in the and Leander Wallace is in the film. No. Uh, not just because he's Jared, that Jared Leto was the actor, one thing that really put me off. I'm like, oh please don't put Leto in it, but okay. It's not even the fact it's not even Jared Leto himself, it's just the character. The character is nothing. The character's pointless. I don't know. Well he's he's character. absolutely nothing at which the uh, at the point at which reports started coming off the set of, of people being really sort of deferential to um, Jared Leto and be like, oh god, he's, he's so in character. He's he's you know he's wearing these contact lenses that render him blind on set because he really wants to. And I'm like that. Oh my god, whatever. Yeah. Just get this over and done with. And then he's in the film for five minutes, and you think, really, please piss off. Yeah. Um, I would excise him yeah. almost entirely from it if it weren't for the yeah. fact it would essentially take that scene away where I felt like Harrison Ford actually sold me the the entire film, but. No, um, I also we have very different feelings about that particular scene because I thought the Rachel CGI doll was terrible. I, I, I generally don't think there was any difference between the quality of that and the quality of Grandma Tarkin. They were both awful, and I despised them both. Uh, but there's so much else positive in that. I just I love the tone of it. I thought Ryan Gosling was great. I had my reservations from the trailers that he just looked sort of, and it's the way the film begins too. It's like he just seems so sort of detached. Yeah, but sort of there, uh-huh. but not, yeah, detached is a good word. Uh-huh. Uh, but it, when you see the film, it makes a great deal of sense. Yeah. And, yeah, I, I really enjoyed that. that I didn't like, I thought, yeah, Neander Wallace, pointless character, Sylvia Hooks, kind of crap character, didn't like Rachel. But for the most part, and apart from the, the end of the film, sort of undermining 
what had happened and mm. the rest of it, the motivations. I I really, really enjoyed it. It's an incredibly beautiful film. I will watch it again. Mm. Um, and I didn't enjoy it as much as you, but I also didn't have the same emotional investment as you mm. because I, apart from the incredibly distinctive style of the original, the original and I don't like it. <laughs> now, last time we spoke, you were gradually coming around because I've ha- I've chipped yes. away at you over the years, and I felt like you yes, were gradually coming around to. Backwards. I actively hate this film. To like, oh, it's all right, Craig. Yeah, no, for because um, we talked about this. Uh, I think the high point of what I of how I considered yeah. the original Blade Runner, the nineteen eighty two film, was when we did our Tech Noir mm. episode, which was sometime last. Are you feel year? you're you feel you're going back the way a bit now. That's yeah, okay, you're dead to me. I mean, you're dead to me. <laughs> I assumed that a long time ago, cool. Craig. I, so that was probably the high point. I, I had been, I had never liked the film, but I, I liked it more and more each time. Um, and I, I kept watching it for some reason. I then watched it again before Blade Runner 2049. And I, yeah, this film's terrible. I don't like it anymore. Um, but Blade Runner 2049, I, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed It's Again, as I say, it's so beautiful visually, and that's that could be enough. It's such a striking film, but then with that that score, those visuals, really interesting, and that's one thing that's particularly stronger about the film is the, the central story is actually stronger than the first mm. one. It has the same themes. I was going to say the only the, the only regret I've got is that story. it wasn't a bit bolder thematically because essentially what it does is amplify the themes of the original. But it, it does it to a degree where I still find it I still find it satisfying. But I almost still wish it had taken a bit more of a risk of its own. But but uh, yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's, um, I, as I say, I have my issues with it, but I would certainly urge anybody to watch this film because mm. it looks so nice and. If cinema is a visual medium, and and that is enough of a reason to watch something, mm. I mean, certainly it doesn't. It's never going to have the impact that Blade Runner had because it is. Mm. It's the same, same world, just still you know, yeah. scrubbed up a bit because it's you know, modern filmmaking techniques, yeah. um, and so it's not going to have the impact that the original had. But I think it's a considerably better film than the mm. original. Yeah, and so I say had caveats, but it was up in my consideration for films of the year. Cool. So I'm not going to argue with it. I don't think it seems to have had the same emotional effect on me that it's had on you and, and on Scott. I remember when we talked about it earlier in the year, Scott said also, as he mentioned tonight, um, about sort of having a real emotional effect and he's thinking about it a lot. It hasn't had quite that impact on me. Listen, a, a lot of it is down, it's the... Also a lot of it for me is it's one of those films that caught me out unexpectedly by turning out like Interstellar to be a daddy-daughter film, which, for obvious reasons, um, stuff like that just totally broadsides me now in a way that I didn't expect. And I, I, I honestly went into Blade Runner 2049 not realising that that is what it was going to turn out to be, essentially that the emotional payoff, that that it was going to be that. Um, I can understand that too, but at least um, I, I, don't, I wasn't shouting into this film, yeah. you're the stupidest thing I've ever seen, mm. which I more or less did at Interstellar, because Interstellar's a turd at the end. <laughs> Interstellar. I'm sorry, another, another film which space library. An, another film which not at the very end, but certainly very close to the end reduced me to tears, yes. <laughs> there you go, I cried at a turd. By the point... Interstellar turned into fifth dimensional space libraries. I was Drew, very much not on board with it anymore. At a time at which the government is cutting back on public funding and we are losing <laughs> valuable public libraries, a fifth dimensional library <laughs> is a bold and necessary step. 
you mean for social progress? A very, a very large screw you to the Tory party. Essentially, yes. But that's an interesting perspective on Interstellar that I had not hitherto considered. <laughs> <laughs> I'm staking my claim. Scott's like run away at this point because we've been talking about it too much. <laughs> all we, I can hear is we now enter, enter our lightning round where we start talking about some of the films we like, with no particular discussion about them. In no, we effort. don't. We we, we <laughs> wait to hear what yeah, you had to, to say be. about Blade Runner. Uh, I've already said I liked it. <laughs> um, well, come on, I didn't. I, I don't think I got the I got the understanding from listening to you guys talking about it in a previous podcast, though that, that it had quite the emotional impact on you. What was I'm interested to hear about how you felt about that. I said at the time it's just a, just overwhelmingly visual. I don't I don't know if I, right. I don't know I don't know if emotional was quite how I'd characterise it. Um, but certainly right. just in in terms of the a more visceral collection uh, connection from the sort of from the from the visuals and the score. I think it does make quite a quite an impact on it at a level that is not quite. Scott narrative backed up with a narrative. Um, is there I something? Is there something you want to tell us? So. Yes, Scott. Tell us something else, please. That um, floated your boat this year. Right, um, a lightning round. Let's let's bundle a few of these together. Since we're getting out of the way, as we kind of alluded to earlier, it's been a banner year for uh, comic book adaptations. Uh, Absolutely. Even the worst of them, I still kind of liked uh, Justice League and Guardians of the Galaxy. Not excellent, but you know, still okay. Um, but when you get onto stuff like Wonder Woman, very good film. Spider Man Homecoming, very enjoyable film. And then you got two, Logan. two that would uh, contend for best film of the year is Logan, mm-hmm. uh, the Old Man Wolverine uh, film, which is uh, particularly fun, and Thor Ragnarok, which was just an incredible amount of fun uh, for all concerned. Possibly the funniest film of the yeah, year. So, yeah, uh, so certainly all, of those, all of them, I'd probably recommend in some form or another. But um, yeah, those, those last two, Logan and Thor Ragnarok, are fantastic. Yeah. For someone for someone who's not a great banner waver and has no real interest in comic books or comic book ma- movie adaptations, I did like punchy punchy head knife kill kill stabby save <laughs> save the bald man, um, <laughs> far more than I expected. That that broadsided me, and I think Drew, you and I both came out of the cinema after Logan, and we both looked at each other, and I think our first question was how how was that a fifteen again? Yes, um, exactly. That was exactly. Uh, exactly. There's so much to love about that movie, and it feels like the first X Men film that was actually allowed to do proper justice to the source material from what i understand it feels certainly in terms of sort of mainstream marvelly stuffs um mm. obviously x-men is a marvel property mm. even though it's not actually their property yeah. yet in that term but yeah it's a the first of those like bigger titles yeah. it feels like the first properly adult one yeah I said I know um, obviously like people t- people cite deadpool but in my personal experience like, i had no previous experience or knowledge whatsoever of Deadpool, so I can't speak to that. I had at least a passing knowledge of Wolverine. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I also I I've, unlike you two, I don't particularly like Deadpool, but also I didn't have the knowledge. Um, it's, what I mentioned earlier, and Scott has alluded to, is about when we talked about Logan, we're thinking this is film of the year potentially, is comic, at least comic book wise, and then we got to Spider Man, so this is possibly the best comic book film of the year, and then we got to Ro- Thor Ragnarok, it's like, oh, oh wait, no, this one is, um, so yeah, um, and I really liked Guardians of the Galaxy Vol. 2 much more so than I liked the first one, so it has been a, a real bumper year for comic book films, as Scott says, and then you have Wonder Woman in the mix as well, but of the ones he's mentioned there, yeah. Oh, and um, uh, I think sorry, I'll, just um, I skipped over Lego Batman because it's not quite a, a comic book film, if you know what I mean. But yeah, that was great as well. Yeah, I I didn't. I had I still went back to 
how sort of some notes are made in it. We never really talked about it other than in passing our podcast. I seem to, when I watched it, didn't like it as much as I remember liking it, but certainly it's pretty decent and a great deal more enjoyable than the Lego movie or the the other Lego movie that we talked about recently, <laughs> yeah. um, which, which made me angry, which I can't quite understand because it's a Lego film and it ought not to make me angry. But <laughs> in terms of comic films... You can't really choose Thor Ragnarok or Logan as being better because they're so different in tone. But Thor Ragnarok, it's so damn funny. And I want to see a um, a Korg spin-off film because that character's brilliant. And I certainly look forward to seeing Taika Waititi given more stuff to do in this universe. I haven't seen Thor Ragnarok. Um, in fact, actually, I can't remember if I've seen either of the two previous Thor films. As a character, he's just not interested me. And then when I saw the... He's not interested in no, the films, he really when isn't. I, when like, I saw the trailer until, for this... Up until this, really. Yeah, when yeah, I saw the trailer for this in the Gladiator ring at the point at which um, Hulk comes out and he turns around and he says, oh, I know this guy, I know he's a friend from work. <laughs> and something about that really struck me and I'm like, oh yeah, remember how actually he's actually a pretty good comic actor. And all the sort of like comic, the, the little sort of like throwaway viral videos they released beforehand of like Liam Hemsworth when he's playing with the action figures and stuff and he's ad-libbing the sort of like, Liam Hemsworth, he's like a, he's a really affable, actually funny guy. And mm. I'm like... Yeah, we a lot of time for Yeah. Him. And I had a lot invested in emotionally in the work he did on Flight of the Concords, which um, was like the only thing that kept me alive when I first moved from uh, home down to England. Um, it was the only thing I looked forward to in any one given week was like, oh, Flight of the Concords. And the problem for me is that I, a couple of weeks ago, finally got round to watching What We Do in the Shadows, and I was totally underwhelmed. And I did not expect that at all. And I went from being like really keen to see Thor Ragnarok to being like, oh, is Kai- Taika Waititi actually a bit oversold? And I know I shouldn't feel like I, that, but... I finally watched What We Do in the Shadows after Thor Ragnarok. Right. And I was really... There were really good elements in there, but it's almost like there's a hard cough. It's like about a 90-minute film. And there's a hard stop about 45 minutes in where they run out of ideas. Yeah. Um, and I was really enjoying it up to that point. Yeah. Uh, but Taika Waititi was great in Thor Ragnarok, and Chris Hemsworth is just... Oh, sorry, I keep I mean, saying Liam Hemsworth, sorry, Chris Hemsworth. Yeah, There are moments in Thor, The Dark World, a little, certainly in the Avengers, where they give him a few funny lines and he, and he delivers them well. Maybe even in Age of Ultron, they're, sort of, they're, they're making the character a bit funnier. In this film, he's just going it, to... It's so different from the other Thor films, which are kind of po-faced, even though they're set in sort of magic space castle place it's just so so funny and it's consistently funny yeah. too the, be- the best thing it doesn't suffer from too many characters uh it does suffer from too much Kate Blanchett which is any Kate Blanchett but particularly in that film yeah. and uh, but also has Jeff Goldblum who is awesome because he's Jeff Goldblum the best and the best that anyone's done to sell it to me so far has been a colleague of mine at work who said to me no 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 Craig understand and this this harks back to what we were talking about earlier about Marvel hiring the right directors for the type of film rather than than for other reasons. And my colleague at work said, uh-huh. no, 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 understand, Craig, this is a $200 million comedy. No, that's exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the, the few moments, it, it, it maintains its comedy very consistently throughout. The only few dips, well, are largely Kate Blanchett because she seems to me the one person who doesn't get the film the only few dips are when it's trying to be a comic book action film instead of a comedy. And it really it suffers for them, but they're very few and far between. 
and everything else. It's just so entertaining. Because who, because who knew if you gave an accomplished director of comedies $200 million to make a comedy, you'd get a really good expensive comedy film, as opposed to getting the... an action director $200 million to make a $200 million film that you thought might turn out to be a comedy. Hmm. And you get a terrible, terrible moustache mm. removal. <laughs> yes, um, Brackets removal. It's, it's a... Um, it is, that, that's what it is. It, it's a big, a massive budget comedy, and it's great. I still will, I still will end up seeing it. Yeah, lightning uh, round, lightning round. Yes, I know. Um, so, okay, so on to my things then. So the other few things I had in consideration for the film of the year, I can't really say it lumped together uh, in the same way Scott did with comic book films there. So I'll just put them together, most of which we've talked already. One is, it doesn't work fantastically well as a film because it, it's based on a stage play and it feels like a stage play on film. But that's Fences, and okay. that makes the grade for me for one of the films of the year on Denzel Washington's performance alone. Really? Because Denzel Washington is amazing. I love Denzel Washington, and he's particularly good in this, and I could watch him. And I could watch him read my shopping list. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's um, cool, because I got to go and see the stage play. I got to see Lenny Henry in the... In the um, Oh, yeah, 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 and it was it was brilliant. And I don't think I've seen any of August Wilson's work performed live before. And I was like, "Oh wow!" So it's like, okay, yeah, Denzel Washington, I'm on board. But it's just never, it's never been anywhere near the top of my priorities list, as it were, in terms of material this that I usually um, I'd usually um, try to digest. Him and Viola Davis. Mm. It's mostly the cast who did it on Broadway, mm-hmm. and got lots of awards on Broadway for. It. Yes, it feels very like the stage work. Yeah. I was going to say, does um, so it feel overtly stagey? It does feel very, very stagey. Um, but, again, I don't care, because Denzel Washington is so good and yeah. I, I forgive any other potential sin it has because he's amazing. Mm. Cool. Okay, so that's that's one. Um, most of the rest I've, um, I've mentioned, the other two that are really real contenders for film of the year for me, one is only, I think, maybe only 60 minutes long. Mm. One is a, a French stop motion animation called Ma Vie de Courgette. Oh, yeah. Or My Life is a Courgette. My Life is a Zucchini. It was released in North America. Which is just this beautiful, charming, touching, wonderful uh, animation that just kind of went straight to my heart. Um, and the other is, I think I made some allusion to it earlier about it being a sequel. Uh, the sequel that you were worried about was Blade Runner 2049. The wor- sequel I was worried about was Trainspotting. Mm. The Trainspotting sequel is amazing. I love that film. Really? I, I was so, oh, it was so, so good. I was so worried about it, thinking, oh, it's 20 years later, and what are they going to do? Are they going to miss the point? And uh, no, it's brilliant. It It's so, so funny. And what's perhaps surprising about it is that the real heart of, I hate the name, it's called T2 Trainspotting, which makes me think of Terminator 2. It's a stupid, stupid name, which Trainspotting 2 would have done. The heart of the film this time is Ewan Bremner's spud. And Ewan Bremner's amazing in it. He's so sympathetic. Um, it's a really entertaining film. It's got a lot of heart as well as a lot of comedy. The The Rangers pub scene may be the single funniest scene I've seen all year. Wow. Again, this is a film that was uh, like just towards the end of our time at high school. So yeah. I mean, all three of us know it basically off by heart. And it's got a seminal 
Scottish film, several British film, and just a generally good film anyway. So I, I was massively apprehensive about it, but the Train Spotting sequel is almost as good as the original. I've got it sitting paid for in my iTunes account, and I still haven't got around to watching it, and I don't know why. Yes, yeah, there's so many things that could have gone wrong. It could have just tried to be capturing the same stuff again, and it sort of does, but it's because these characters can't let go of it, yeah. so it works. Um, there's like, is Begbie going to be Begbie? Is he still going to be scary? God damn, Begbie's still scary. He's a psychopath. Um, but the, the absolute revelation is Spud, and he makes the film, and yeah, it's brilliant. So yes, so of so that's uh, Ma Vie de Courgette, Train Spotting Two, and Fences. Mm. The other films of the year for me. I suppose the only other things I could add to my, my list is I think it's been a bumper year for sci-fi, and I think. Um, uh, Alien Covenant and Life were, were both <laughs> were both I'm sorry for a second I thought you were being serious oh, thought, you, you got me well I thought done. Alien Covenant and Life were both shining examples of how you could take a huge of how not to do it well I always I've always thought to myself what's the most amount of money you could physically flush down a standard toilet <laughs> and uh, there you go um, in two successive sci-fi films that I saw this year I, I saw my expectations of exactly how much money that could be uh, raised um, uh, by by huge amounts so I now have a real appreciation for uh, how you can how you can throw money down the toilet <laughs> um, but real uh, obviously for the same reasons that I've I've not been a particularly active participant in the podcast for the last about six months or so, a conservative estimate, um, I have not had the opportunity to invest a lot of time in getting my ass to Mars and or the cinema, um, and even having a chance to catch up with stuff at home. So I don't have any great input other than um, I was very selective about what I saw in cinemas this year and Alien Covenant aside, I, I wasn't massively disappointed. What was the fourth one again? Alien Covenant, Dunkirk. Blade Runner. What else did I see? Come on, again, I, I pay I pay you good money to outsource my memory. Yes, come on. Um, Logan. Logan. That was it. So there you go. Three out of four ain't bad. If I'm only going to sit in a cinema four times this year, then I've I've not really had that much of a bum deal there. I'll I'll take the hit on Covenant. Okay, then Scott, do you have anything more to add or anything to say about what I mentioned? Um, yes, I've not seen Fences, um, but uh, yeah, Logan and uh, sorry, Transplant <laughs> Two and My Life as a Court. Yeah, we're certainly up on my list. Uh, the other ones that could do on another day have been higher up or lower down, depending on how you like it. There's a like twenty or so of it. Um, <laughs> just like Craig says, there's there's a list of literally hundreds of films that I wanted to get to that I haven't, but. Uh, yes, I like. But all, one of, of them, what I have done seen, uh, you've got. Uh, the Founder, Manchester by the Sea, Moonlight, Ukja, mm-hmm. Colossal, The yes. Big Sick, Anthem of the Heart, uh, Death of Stalin, and L, all of which I would recommend wholeheartedly. Yes, yeah, so, um, yeah, so we're a tier below my absolute favourites of the year, but some of mine coincide with yours, Scott. L, genuinely very, very interesting film. I was somewhat convinced I like it, but it, it's a deeply thought-provoking film, and on that grounds alone, it's worth watching. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I very much urge people to watch L. It's not an easy watch because of the content matter, subject matter, but it's how, really how badly it portrays the act of uh, creating video games. Is that what you? <laughs> that, that's mm-hmm. it. Yeah, um, it's uh, yeah. And if you're only familiar with Paul Verhoeven from things like Robocop or Starship Troopers, then it's worth watching L just to get a different take on the what he's capable of producing. 
Manchester by the Sea, utterly depressing, but really good. Very, really really good, yeah. Manchester by the Sea was a standout for me. That's another one we got a chance to catch up with. Um, um, let's see, yeah. The Death of Stalin, certainly. Uh, not as good as I hoped it would be. I can't, that's possibly one of my big disappointments to the years, The Death of Stalin. I was surprised by your reaction. I've not seen it, but listening to, listening to your thoughts on it recently, I, w- I was, I was kind of, I felt disappointed for both of you, because I know you're both yeah, big I'm, Armando Iannucci fans. Yeah, we both wanted to like that more, mm. I think. Um, I didn't, but, but possibly performance of the year from Simon Russell Beale, because he's, oh, oh, he's terrifying. He's genuinely frightening. And uh, other films up there for me. Lion is pretty interesting. I, I like Lion. I st- I'm not sure now. I, I don't remember it as well as I did at the start of the year. But that's quite interesting. Dev Patel, Nicole Kidman, um, David Wenham. But an uh, adopted child in Australia trying to find his true family in in India. Pretty interesting. Moonlight. You mentioned Moonlight, Scott, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, pretty powerful stuff. I get, I kind of hoped for more from that, but it's still very interesting, very worth seeing. Um, in the same sort of social aspect, for the same, in the way that L is as well. Different social aspect, obviously, but for those reasons. Uh, what else did it really worth mentioning for me is, is that was close to the top. Baby Driver, I think. Um, not quite the best Edgar Wright film, but Baby Driver, genuinely very, very entertaining film. Love the way it's choreographed with the music. Uh, the big problem with Baby Driver is that the main character, Baby Driver, is is just a blank. And that lets the film down a little. Otherwise, really entertaining. I, I decided from the basis of the trailer that that film was going to annoy me. And I committed to actually going to watch it. And then it was literally the day that I was I had set aside to watch Baby Driver that the whole revelation about Kevin Spacey's conduct over the years came out, and I was like, yeah, I'm out. For now. I forgot he was in that. That's, yeah. um, but uh, I actually had forgot he was in that. <laughs> the, f- the first five, ten minutes of Baby Driver didn't sit well with me. I thought, oh, you just, this is going to be annoying, but no, I got into it after that. Yeah. Um, uh, I'll still give it a hearing, I just need a bit of space. I mean, I think maybe the other thing, because I just I genuinely just enjoyed it. I mean, I mean, maybe in some measures it's not the best of films, but Lucknow Central, I just found really entertaining. So that's up there for me. Um, the Indian film that Scott and I saw last month, month before we talked about it in intermissions. Yeah. yeah, Wonder Woman's up there. Spider Man, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two, all of those things. But in the real standouts that. Are just below the level of best of year, L Moonlight, Manchester by the Sea, um, and Baby Driver probably, and Death of Stalin. Uh, I have awesome. Um, just a couple, couple of other sort of vaguely interesting ones. Dunkirk was interesting, but ultimately disappointing. I don't see what people were getting out of that film. That I, I just I couldn't really get into it. When I saw it in IMAX. And if I hadn't seen an IMAX, I suspect I'd have got considerably less out of it. It was just the fact the incredible sound system. Um, there's particularly there's a scene where the the dive bomber is coming along the beach, and you hear that that really specific sound of the dive bomber. And through an IMAX sound system, the hairs were standing up in my arms. It was it was incredible. But that's one of the few points of that film where I had any strong emotional response. 
as I was really disappointed by Dunkirk, I'd be looking forward to it a lot. Um, Jackie, which I mentioned earlier, the Pablo Larraín film about Jackie Onassis and Colossal, which Scott's mentioned too, which is a sort of unusual monster film. Um, but that's certainly interesting and quite unlike anything I've seen during the rest of the year, I think. Mm. So, uh, Scott, unless you have anything else to add in particular, I guess we move on to the worst of the year. I just wanted yeah. to add on Dun- Dunkirk, sorry. I, f- I forgot again about Dunkirk as well. That I, I quite enjoyed Dunkirk, but my... And again, like you say, Drew, um, a cinema with the best possible sound setup is key because a lot of the enjoyment of that film is in the sound design. Um, and yeah, the, the shepherd's tone. Yeah, like that, exactly. Um, pitch within a pitch yeah, thing. I was going to say, which, lent, which lends a whole lot to this um, relentless sort of atmosphere of pace and oppression and like building tension throughout the entire film, which is that film's strong suit, I think. The only criticism I've got of Dunkirk, and it's something that I've... Even, even though I, I love a great many of Nolan's films... I feel like The Prestige is one of the few Nolan films where I don't feel like this is the case, but I've I've had this nagging suspicion throughout the Batman films and even the likes of Inception to a degree, although I think it still massively, massively succeeds right. I always get this impression with Christopher Nolan that there's something missing and it's not... <sighs> I think there's a lot of artifice there and it's very clever artifice. It's very intricately designed artifice, and it's not that the emperor has got no clothes, but it's that the emperor's got far fewer clothes than we think he has. And over recent movies, and as much as I love Interstellar, I think it was the first time I started to notice it, and then I see stuff in retrospect, and then by the time we get to Dunkirk, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, is it actually all that great a piece of filmmaking that I think just recently the Golden Globe nominations come out, came out and it's up for Best Drama? And I'm thinking to myself... There isn't any. Yeah, I'm thinking... I'm th- no, well, no, that, that I get that right. Well, not a lot. Either. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a drama, right? In terms of in terms of dramatic genres, it's, it's in the right nomination um, category there. But is it one of the best dramas that's come out this year? I haven't seen a lot of films this year, but I'm pretty sure it shouldn't be there. And I'm just mm. waiting for the tide of opinion to turn on Christopher Nolan at some point, because at some point he's going to make the film where people go, well, this is a disappointment. But I think retrospectively, in time, we're going to look back and go and think to ourselves, actually, there's not as much substance to some of his stuff as we actually thought there was at the time. I'm not sure you agree with that, but certainly I do have, big issues with Dunkirk and one of them Scott talked we never talked about this on the podcast Scott did that podcast on his own but I very much agreed with him too it's the, it's the one time that I can think of that Christopher Nolan's desire to only use practical effects yeah. was a real Achilles heel mm. because the the seven ships that turn up to help evacuate yeah, the yeah. Dunkirk refugees is like, no, that's underwhelming in the extreme ridiculous. that was the point at which yeah, you, you needed to deploy the CGI and yeah. very so simple seamless to, CGI by this point at, yeah, at the, for two things um, that's, you can't just issue CGI entirely. there are good reasons for it sometimes mm-hmm. it's for a thing that simply can't exist otherwise yeah. And the other thing that I've always been a proponent of the use of CGI for is scale. I was going to say scale, yep. Um, so there are two things in Dunkirk that sorely needed increasing in scale. One is simply the number of troops on the beach. You can't say there are 150,000 troops there and so short yeah, at 400. I was going to say, yeah. 
and the second is the sheer number of ships. It turns out, oh, we're, we're fighting to get through and we're going to rescue these ships. And like, oh, there's seven of you. That's going to take a while then, isn't it? It's, <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's true, though. It's, 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 to an extent, it's cutting his nose off despite his face because if you want to create drama and scale and, like you say, tell me there are 150,000 troops on the beach and you're going to do it practically, you need to go and hire 150,000 people. Otherwise, yeah. pay 50 grand to the effects company to copy and paste. Yeah. <laughs> you don't You don't, need, don't use CGI for the sake of using CGI, no. but simply... I appreciate that there's another tool yeah, there in your arsenal. Because you fail to do what you set out to do and do it physically. And use it to make your film better because it is a tool that's available yeah. to you. And CGI is so good at scale. When yeah. you look at things like the Lord of the Rings films, which are a frightening number of years ago now, um, and we're all going to die soon. I'm so old. Yeah. But uh, the um, like the Lord of the Rings films, one of the things that I, I, I think one of the things that made those films look so good was the fact that it wasn't CGI for the the castles and stuff. I mean, manipulated in a computer, but there were those so-called bigotures. Uh-huh. Um, there was so much detail put into those by hand, and that's why they looked so great. But where CGI worked in, for instance, those was the scale, the, the battles with the uh-huh. 10,000 orcs yeah. and things. And that's that sort of thing, CGI is tailor-made for. Yeah, and it's, 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 enough to shoot it's disappointing in the case of Dunkirk, especially when you're trying to do something justice historically. And... Christopher Nolan is a director who, if you had to pick a name out on paper and state, who's someone who I can trust to liberally deploy CGI as and when it, it's the best so. creative tool, then you would hope it would be him. And it did seem like a bit of a slap in the face because I had exactly the same impression coming out. I'm like, is that it? Is that the, as many ships yeah. as, you've, as you've got? What? Um, and it was only afterwards I read about the fact that, oh, no, there was no such and such. It, it was, yeah, they just basically got whatever ships they could. And I'm like, hmm, okay. You've you've uh, you've cut your nose off to spite your face there a bit in the pursuit of uh, physical recreation as opposed to just using like you say, Drew, the the, the tools that are available to you for the filmmaking craft. Um, but yeah. whatever. I think I think there was always a danger now because of people expecting scale so much that if you had the real number, yeah. even people uh, wouldn't believe CGI, it. The real number, people think, oh, that's not. You've over-egged the pudding. Though. The fact that it was it was so f- many fewer than the real mm-hmm. number as it just looked ridiculous. That's it. It totally undermined the drama of that. It's like, oh, so, you know, eight pleasure yachts have turned up to um, rescue the <laughs> 12 and a half people that are on the beach now. Okay, I guess that'll do it. You've got, you've got, you've got Mark Rylance in a cardigan turning up like that. Oh, all right, hop aboard. There's room for 150,000. <laughs> don't, don't mind the dead boy downstairs. <laughs> <laughs> Chuck him in the fridge. There's plenty of room for everyone. Humble, humble, humble. Ooh. Aye, there you go. Scott, anything you want to chuck in at this point? Sorry. Uh, no, no. I think we should move on <laughs> to films that were either disappointing or just outright sucked. Uh, I, I will break. Which of Alien Covenant? Yes, uh, I, will, I will break for one point. Uh, generally, just run by calendar year for these things, but one film that came so late last year that we couldn't quite bag on it for as much as it deserved was Passengers which technically came out in 2016 here but Passengers yeah, is really Mark, bad and a horrible film Passengers creepy 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 rapey boy message, in space Passengers whose um, central message is murder is okay if you're lonely <laughs> uh, so there's a bunch of films that otherwise didn't like um, some of which were just boring some of which were just fell apart things like and some of which uh, were Alien Covenant uh, which made me so angry <laughs> so why, why would it make you angry what were you expecting yeah uh, 
Alien Covenant is probably marginally better than Life, both of which Craig mentioned earlier and were terrible uh, in terms of just crappy things. Death Race 2050 was just bad. Uh, you saw that? I've never even heard of that. What is that? <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a sequel to Death Race, uh, whatever it was. Really? 2010. Paul W.S. Yeah, Anderson. With Statham. Which was surprisingly not it's, awful. It is, uh, no, not well. I suppose it would be. Uh, I see with that, but it's more in terms of the old um, Death Race, uh, Sylvester Stallone uh, one. It's more in that. Oh, crap. the original Death Race yeah. is an absolutely. But yes, film. and it's it's more in that style, and it's but with like a, a CG overlay, <laughs> and it's garbage. Um, uh, disappointing, La La Land. It's not bad, but it just didn't really it didn't land for me. Um, actually, Made me cry. Actually, oh, bad oh. films. A Dog's Purpose. Obviously rubbish. Yes, yes, it is terrible, terrible, terrible film with terrible, terrible Dennis Quaid. Yes, and, uh, yes another <laughs> podcast this year that Dennis Quaid's been mentioned in. Things that are actually I just... I win uh, something. <laughs> oh, dear. I did not just punch the air. You're on the internet, so you're not allowed to say that anything with a dog in it is crap, all right? <laughs> I for, I, sorry, I forgot films of the year, La La Land. Can't, yeah, I can't believe you guys didn't like it as much. Made me cry, whatever. No, it's, I was barely... I, I didn't... Um, recognise any of the songs shut while they up. were playing in the film. Shut up. We've gone over the shut up. <laughs> Next, Scott. Uh, in terms of films that I had some sort of hope for, um, The Circle is an interesting concept, but it's just really boringly executed and the character motivations make no sense. Uh, but I think the two in terms... The two that are showing up in a lot of people's films of the year list that absolutely puzzle me is uh, Certain Women, which I can sort of see why to a degree but it was just really glacially paced and nothing happens in it and I don't understand why people would pay money to watch it and a ghost story which is dreadful and is about a woman <laughs> eating pie and it makes no sense to be on anyone's best film of the year list yes. I was prepared to this give is... it the benefit of the doubt on the basis of Manchester by the Sea until I listened to you guys talking about it oh, I was like oh God. okay, okay. No. but then you didn't Craig, like La La, no. La Land so um, Craig, there are, I am not exaggerating and Scott mentioned this too, and I was talking to somebody on, this, on Twitter about this, Lewis Clark too. There are nearly seven minutes of a 90-minute film dedicated to somebody eating a pie. I read about that, and I was still willing to give it the benefit of the doubt. And then I think I saw, I, I, I remember watching like some, it was some crass review show like late night on like ITV3 or something that was flicking through at like two o'clock in the morning um, when one of the kids had woken us up or something. I remember seeing this clip of it and it was like Michelle Williams or whatever and then just this out of focus person under a white sheet shuffling into frame in the background and it honestly for all the world looked like a, um, a Peter Serafinowicz sketch when he did that <laughs> acting masterclass, the one with um, the one where he was playing Michael Caine and he kept sneaking at the back of frame in his own shots and I just, I'm like, nah, I don't know if I can take this seriously but Come on, I've read enough good reviews. I'll, I'm sure I'll get over that. I'm sure I'll get over that white sheet barrier. And then I listened to you guys talking about it and I thought, nah, I'm, I'm not even going to bother. No, uh, quite apart from the pie scene, Craig, I'm going to mention what I mentioned when we talked about it a few months ago. This is a film in which a ghost, a ghost commits suicide. Oh, all right. <laughs> right, you don't need to know any more than that. It's the stupidest thing I've ever seen, apart from Transformers The Last Night, which is the stupidest <laughs> film I've ever seen. Why are you still watching Transformers films? Because I'm an idiot. 
I actually watched that because I was suffering from insomnia and it was available to me and I watched it and, and oh, it was amazing to solve my insomnia because my insomnia is so bad. I'm sure the sum total of all the films available on demand in the world were available <laughs> to you and you still as yeah. a functioning adult chose Transformers. Yeah. Um, right, okay, so in addition to what Scott said, yes, A Dog's Purpose is an absolute turd of a film. Alien Covenant, I hate... Um, I actually have in here my list of worst films. A Ghost in the Shell, I think that may be doing a bit of a disservice, actually. I watched it about a week yeah. ago, to be honest with you, and I was like, not sure what this is hoping to achieve. But for something that... It's not the worst film I've ever seen. Well, for something that emulates the source material, so or... or um, Mas- was it Masamune Shiro who... who um, who produced the anime, or was it his? Was it his? Was it his? Um, was it his uh, graphic novel that the film was the original animation was based on? It's Oshi. Um, Sorry, Oshi. I can't remember. The name. Uh, I'm getting mixed up now. Oshi. I'm getting mixed up now. Oh, f- but Otomo's Akira Mashumuri Oshi. Oh God, I've been drinking too much. Well, I, I was going to say I've got myself completely confuddled. I remember this. I can't claim to be in on ground level with the um, with the graphic novel or anything like that. But certainly, early doors when in that first wave of anime stuff being released on video over here, Ghost in the Shell was an early watch for me. And I know Scott, you picked it as one of your sort of like fundamental your top ten films of all time, and I can totally get behind that. And for something that emulated that so closely, but in live action, I think if anything. This ghost in the shelf just went to serve the purpose of highlighting how effective animation can be as an art form when it's deployed <laughs> properly, as opposed yeah. to trying to adapt something like that as live action mm. and not actually understanding what it was or what it was doing. Um, because you can't just clone something and expect it to have to have a soul, which is the plot of Blade Runner essentially. <laughs> and yeah, I I was just my overarching. Uh, or my overbearing thought after watching that was not that I hated it, I just didn't understand what the point of it was. Yeah, yeah. That, that that's it exactly great. It missed the point. It's like, I, I kind of feel a bit harsh that I put it my absolute worst of the year because I mean it had good production value, it looked yeah. nice, it, it kind of missed the point and I don't see why that film existed where, you know, for instance, Alien Covenant, I genuinely hate because it's a terrible film for terrible And people. everybody involved um, in it should be thoroughly ashamed, including Fastbender, yeah, well, who is seriously... Um, blotted his copybook and his nest this year between this and flipping Assassin's Creed. Assassin's mate, Creed, mate. What you and he was pro- he was producer um, on Assassin's Creed. Get over yourself, mate. What it's Alien Covenant is terrible because it's a whole film full of morons apart from Danny McBride who's hatted moron yeah. and that's their entire character. As Scott said when we talked about it, what is an alien? Whatever you want it to be, who knows? Who cares? <laughs> Whatever's convenient for the plot at the time. I am um, Ridley Scott once again missing in the entire yeah. point of why people like the alien yeah. and what on earth is going on. In it's one film. of those films that you still we we are almost duty bound to go and see an alien film in the cinema now. Even though I think upon the original reveal of the it was either the trailer or that like three four minute featurette they did about the crew of the ship, and my immediate response to that was, you expect to believe me that the best of the best who we would choose to seed um, a, a sort of far planet, another Earth, would include Danny McBride. <laughs> yeah, even that. I mean, I'm look, not buying your message. Who, who doesn't have a character. Yeah. Um, and when we discussed this in our Aliens episode, so we're not going to go too much into it, but nothing makes any sense. No, no Everybody's an idiot. None, there's yeah. no logic in this film at all. It, as with Prometheus, it misses the point entirely. It's a terrible film. Don't watch mm. it. Uh, other and also bad, terrible. bad for the budget as well. Bad CG. 
oh no, that the, the alien was brilliant and not at all crap. Last couple of things, um, for for also reasons of insomnia, the reasons I watched Transformers last night, I also watched Geostorm. It, it, it's its own punishment, really, because Geostorm is a terrible film for terrible people also. Uh, it's even stupider than 2012, if you can believe that, Scott, which is quite a stretch. Ghost Story's terrible. The Lego and Jago movie. I don't know why I hate this film so much, but I do. And the other film I really disliked was Prevenge. Which I know you sort of liked to some degree. I just did not like, but... Oh, the other film I have here. I I think I must have checked that it was released this year, but A Cure for Wellness, which was largely a cure for insomnia, as it turned out. Yeah, um, the back that we produced it, which is very boring. Um, looks looks yes, great, but there's... Looked lovely. Yeah, nothing, nothing there at all. Okay, so I think we've finished our discussion. Um, I do believe we have some stuff on the Twitters. Uh, yes, there's a few, um, which I'll, in the of time, I may uh, abbreviate some of this, but um, thanks to everyone that got back to us uh, from, on Twitters. Uh, uh, part of that is at Tom Fredo, who was talking about how much he liked Get Out. Tengushi, at Tengushi. Uh, quite liked Valerian, although <laughs> I guess he doesn't particularly want to defend that opinion. Uh, at Sonic Yoda. Uh, <laughs> Ucha is uh, extremely high up there for me. Loved the dark humour and loved that it successfully dealt with something like veganism in a way that wasn't pandering. The guys at the Films and Sparing podcast, that's at FAS Podcast on Twitter. That's, they were delighted with Baby Driver, enraged with Power Rangers, surprised with it, and disappointed with Death Note. Yeah, Death Note was a bit rubbish, unfortunately. I'd be kind of looking forward to that. It's, uh, Matt Toller, at M Toller. Uh, missed some big ones, haven't we all? <laughs> Especially this fall, but here's an unofficial wrap-up. Uh, best, War for the Planet of the Apes in John Wick 2. Good, but didn't like as much as everyone else. Logan in Dunkirk. Better than the reputation. It comes at night in Alien Covenant. No. Worst, Justice no. League. <laughs> I'm sorry, yeah. Matt, but you're yeah, wrong. I'm, I, I'm not going to defend Justice League very much, but it's definitely not the worst film of the year. Uh... And it's definitely considerably better than the Alien Covenant. Yes. Most things are. <laughs> uh, also from uh, Sonic Coda, he's pretty sure that Blade Runner uh, 2049 is his favourite film of the year based purely on the aesthetic and flaming framing alone. He loves the way that Denis shoots films and this solidified that opinion, which I think we can get on board with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not going to get much argument there, Lewis. And he also thinks that uh, Thor Ragnarok deserves to be up there as well. Uh, real. Yeah, Simply in terms of being funny, Thor Ragnarok ought to be um, high up in most people's films of the year list. Uh, I think it's so easy to get down the, like, you know, it needs to be sort of worthy or dramatic or something. No, Thor Ragnarok's just incredibly funny and it made me feel happy and that is a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> and at Scott's actor, Stephen Nelson, uh, also favourite films of the, the year on the big screen uh, Blade Runner 2049 which uh, visually stunning and mentally stimulating Villeneuve is really impressed with his three most recent outings which I agree with completely and also pleasantly surprised with Trainspotting T2 uh, yes it is good yes he has my same issue with the terrible name yeah. though because it makes him <laughs> like, we are both in agreement that it, um, Stephen and I that it makes you think of Arnold Schwarzenegger films which it's a strange name I don't know what they would do that. Trainspotting 2 would have done <laughs> And uh, at Louis, Louis underscore Kong, uh, thoughts that you, I think he was quite fond of Split, apart from the ending being uh, a bit pap. A great movie right up until the supernatural element was introduced. That said, I really enjoyed the different characters that McAvoy portrayed. Uh, I was kind of enjoying it ironically for a while, but when the supernatural sort of garbage at the end came in, yeah. it's like, yeah, no thank yeah. you. 
Yeah, it was for me. It was kind of yeah, it was okay. It did feel a bit sort of one of those kind of indulgent actor films where they get to play lots of different roles or something like that. But I was like, okay, I'm, I'm kind of curious where this is going. As I got to the final act, uh, nope, hard nope, not not so good. Um, I did have to check that one was actually this year. It feels like longer ago. No, it was twentieth of January or something that came out this year in the UK. So that that makes it under the under the rope. Yes, yes. So uh, yes, if you've uh, any bones to pick with what we picked, or if there's anything you uh, think we've overlooked, please do give us a shout. That's you can do so on Twitter at fuds on film or Facebook facebook.com slash fuds on film or through the emails that's podcast at fuds on Until next time, you all better take care of yourself and each other. I'm Scott Morris. And Drew Davenil has been Drew Davenil. Bye. And um, Craig was Craig, but he had to shoot off earlier, so for, for Craig also, bye. Bye-bye.